works for me, man. Good for you. Yeah. Very cool looking place. You in like a log cabin or something? Yeah, they Michelle's parents' place is like a it's like a cabin in the woods. That's pretty cool. It's How sweet. long have you been there for now? Like two weeks? Yeah, about that. I think two weeks on uh, uh, I don't know. Two weeks today? Yesterday? I don't remember exactly. I think I was like two and a bit weeks total, so probably just probably around two weeks now. Back on Sunday. Mm. You left just in time, right as you left, gym's closed. Well, sort of. Oh, really? Yeah. They, I almost texted you being like, hey, do you mind if I live in your garage for two weeks? Because our gym was threatened to have shut down. And then luckily it was, well, not luckily, but oh, for no, me. Oh, no, for you guys in Vancouver, though, not in the, not in the island. No, not in the island. No, 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 no. Just, I mean, just like in generalizing where we live. Yeah. yeah I know the island's fine. But yeah, yeah, I know Fraser Valley got like super shut down and a bunch of them around us. Yeah, group fitness classes were the problem. That's what really got hit. It wasn't, we were allowed to stay open for individual fitness. So like CrossFit gyms are allowed to stay open, but you can only be doing individual training. You can't have a group class going on. Oh, right. Okay. So anyway, yeah, that's almost like, I'm going to take a ferry and <laughs> go use your rig for a little bit. But if I want to, apparently Michelle told me in our, our neighborhood has like a Facebook group and there's some people saying that some packages were getting stolen off of steps recently. Oh, so I was like, oh, great, because I'm pretty sure we probably have, like, a bunch of packages that are waiting at our house. Yeah. Not, like, one of our friends is going out to water the plants, so she probably, mm. hopefully, has taken a couple in, but I was like, it'd be nice to have someone looking after the house. Yeah. You got to get one of those, like, doorbells with a camera in it. You know those ones that, like, catch all, like, the people slipping on ice? It's oh, like yeah. actual doorbell with camera. Yeah. yeah, everybody has one of those. Set up, like, a little intruder alarm system. We had a no, package. You can't do anything, though. Well, I know that's, I, I don't understand really. People just want to like see their packages get stolen as opposed to just having them get stolen and be like, ah, ah, there it was. There it goes. Like, yeah. you know, hunt the I guy had a down. package too that I think showed up on the 13th that I hadn't, I don't even know who it was from or anything. Like we had, uh, it, it was marked as from Adidas, so it, which owns Reebok. So presumably it was from Reebok. It was shipping from like South Carolina or something. Mm -hmm. I messaged both Reebok Canada and Reebok International asking who sent it, and neither of them knew anything about it. So I was like, okay, I'm curious to see what this is. And yeah. Then now maybe I'll never find out. <laughs> Dude, I got a mysterious package in the mail, unmarked package from Hong Kong, like two, two days ago. And I had no, literally no idea what it is. I ordered nothing. I didn't have a brand tell me they were sending me anything. And then I opened it up, and it was a massage gun. And I was like, oh, <laughs> okay, sure. I'll take it. And then I got it a makes message. Makes you wonder where I got your address. Well, so I got a message later from this person I had been talking to over a month ago. And it was the most broken conversation ever. So I just assumed nothing was coming from it. And I guess I completely forgotten that she had messaged me a long time ago being like, hey, we have this company. We want to send your product. So I gave my address, but I it was a month ago. So I completely forgot about it. And then out of nowhere, it just shows up at my door unmarked from Hong Kong. I was like, wow, that's interesting. Right. Huh. man weird weird that things happen conversation with savan it was good man it was interesting he uh he's a colorful dude he's got a lot of a lot of sides to him i mean for me it was mainly just talking about content because like he his behind the scenes series is uh was a big um you know motivator i guess for me in developing my style with like the day in the life stuff like you know when i did the day in the life with you and pretty much anytime i film with you or many athletes i usually stay more behind the camera and just ask questions and that was like a little bit of where i got the style from so it was interesting i mean we have a few differing opinions obviously on a lot of things but i think that's 
a good thing to do is have conversations with people maybe who are a little bit in a different world than you sometimes. I thought I wasn't sure if you were talking about his recent departure from CrossFit. We, it came up a little bit. I honestly didn't really know much about it. Um, I just kind of heard through like the grapevine. We didn't really talk about it too much. He, He touched on it a little bit. Obviously he's very old guard in the CrossFit world. Um, and, you know, comes from like that older, he was there since the beginning. So obviously I think he has his opinions on things and he's entitled to them. I don't know if I necessarily agree with all of them, but it's fun. It was a good conversation. Have you had much interaction with him? Were you there the day in the life or not the day in life, the uh, behind the scenes days with him, like asking you questions? Yeah, I had lots of that. And I was in, I was at CrossFit once and I did this podcast a couple times. times. Oh yeah. When they tried to convince it. you to do the level one. Yeah. I remember that. Official. I remember that. So, I mean, I did that with him. And I mean, I interacted with him a fair amount there because I was there shooting some media and doing some things. But that's mm-hmm. kind of it. Since since then, I haven't really. Mm-hmm. Like, I've mm-hmm. seen him at a couple events since that was, like, probably 2017 or 2018. And I haven't, uh, I haven't seen him since. Do you think CrossFit's going to pull media internally again? Probably not all of it. But I bet you they'll have some internal media. Um. Yeah, I don't know. I th- I think that probably Savon isn't the guy to run it. No, I don't I'm think he's. Surprised. I'm not surprised that uh, Rosa doesn't want him doing that. But I think that that's just like he's part of a big exodus. That was a lot of like the very inner circle of like Greg's people mm-hmm. that were probably getting way too much, getting paid way too much to do basically nothing, and had like weird. They basically just were like holding old school like Greg method like Greg ideologies that mm. weren't necessarily and pr- were probably unwilling and inflexible to change. Mm. Mm. It's not like it's very, pretty unsurprising. Yeah. You see that a lot in companies when ownership changes is, is kind of even like yeah. administrations right now, look at the States, like administrations change every four years or every eight years. And there's always a mass exodus of people from the old administration. So it makes sense. But no, I'm interested to see because like 2019 was like the year of opportunity for people like me. And whether that, that opportunity now is going to be lessened for new people coming in, if, if CrossFit's going to have more of like a overarching hand in the content space, or if it's still going to be as like free media as it was last year. I'm not sure. I think that a lot of things, if I had to guess, I'd say that they have a small in-house media group for when they are shooting things that they want to do at CrossFit or like for the health stuff or very specific things like at CrossFit. Mm-hmm. But as far as competition media is concerned, I doubt they hold a big enough group to run it. But they never did, really. Like, yeah. they had people, like, in Australia and things like that. Like, they had people who they affiliated with who didn't really, like, work full-time for CrossFit. But when it was regionals time, they'd, like, hire those same people. And they were, like, they were their media guys out in that place. Right. So I bet you a lot of those groups still get employed or the people that they know um, that have kind of branched out and done other things now, probably a lot of them still work lots of that stuff. They probably just outsource to like good media mm-hmm. um, or, or they hire like larger contracts and like harder, larger media deals. Like that's something Rosa wants to do anyways, like increase yeah. exposure and things like that. So it wouldn't surprise me to see them outsource that and try to grow that bubble instead of keeping it centralized. Yeah. Yeah, it'll be anyway, it'll be interesting see. to see because though a lot of the c- contributions from those people getting contracted usually come back through the CrossFit vessel. They'll get posted to the CrossFit YouTube channel, posted whatever, still under that 
I'm thinking more like independent creators like myself who are going to post to their own channel with no direct affiliation across it. Is there still going to be a welcome mentality to having, because like it was really easy, like especially in 2019, like I was literally nobody and uh, it was really easy to get access to a lot of events and stuff. I wonder if sanctionals are going to be as open to letting people get media passes now if CrossFit's like, hey, I'm significantly less than it was in 2019. Yeah. Um, Because in 2019, they didn't care. It was a complete free-for-all. Complete Uh, free-for-all. It it has to be more controlled than that because it's impossible to be less controlled than that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Like there is no, there's no level down from that in terms of control. There was zero. (laughs) It was crazy. If you you were a spectator and you had a camera and you wanted front row seats, you could just apply for a media pass. Yep. Dude, the games, the, the games in 2019 was ridiculous how many people had media access. That's what I mean. Like if you just wanted a front row seat, you just fucking went as media, took a couple pictures and like it was, so they, there has to be more than that. But yeah. what, what, what it looks like, I don't really know. I, I suspect over time they'll build some relationships and, and I mean, they'll probably maintain some of the ones they have and use mm-hmm. some certain people. And, and my guess would be if they went that direction, you'd, you'd, you know, you'd have to get their approval for certain things. And mm-hmm. like, you'd, you probably would be working under them as a, as a uh, short-term contract. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, or it'll be just like they'll make bigger deals with like larger media outlets that are more international that will cover it. I think those would be the two most likely scenarios, but I, I, I don't really know. That's just kind of full speculation. Yeah. I think if I had my way, and I want to hear your opinion if you think this is something that could happen or survive in the space. If I had my way, I would love to build some level of like notoriety around just doing similar to Savon's behind the scenes style series. Like when I go to events, that's what I'll do is I'll like go behind, just ask questions in the warm up area, tell a story instead of like, I don't really want to shoot vlogs at events. Like going to events and shooting vlogs doesn't interest me. Cause it's like, you're just looking for like a clip and whatever. And it's like, you're in the crowd. Like it's, it's not that interesting. I like telling stories. Do you think that there will be a chance for outside people? Like if I wanted to go in and be the new behind the scenes guy, do you think CrossFit's going to allow that to happen from an access perspective for people who aren't directly affiliated with them? Or do you think I would have to maybe apply to produce it for them instead of on my own? You might, you might have to pitch it to them. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is it might depend how, how heavily they want to kind of standardize things for various events. Like mm-hmm. if they like that idea and they're like, okay, we want to produce that at every single event you know, maybe they need four or five of you to make mm-hmm. that happen. And then you're one of them. And then they have somebody in Europe and there's somebody wherever. And they, and they, mm-hmm. they use that correspondent over the three or four weeks of competitions and make it work. Um, you know, maybe it is something that they end up liking, but um, I, I think you'd have to pitch it and it would just, yeah, it might depend on how, how tightly they want to control things. Um, Cause we still don't know. There's been some talk about like what the season's going to look like, but we don't know yet. Mm-hmm. Um, CrossFit said they want to have a role in every of the competition, like all the different mm-hmm. competitions that run, because they want to, they just want to be involved, like they want it to be one big family. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's unclear what the level of, of you know, commitment is to each competition. Like, does that mean that you want to control programming at every event? Do you want to do media? Do you want to do like logistics? Do you want to like? We're not sure what that means, or mm-hmm. they just want the name attached to it. Do they want? to provide financial support like there's just like there's no we don't know yet and i yeah. think that they're still figuring out Deciding, what, yeah. 
and like working with the different events that are going to run, like figuring out what's necessary and what the expectations are going to be um, and just building that stuff up. So um, that's a good question. I bet you like, I think there's a market for it. Like I mm -hmm. think that they've proven that in the past. People really mm -hmm. like that kind of content. Mm -hmm. um, and even at a, you know, at a sanctional or like regional level, I think some of the popular content that comes out, in my opinion, um, other than, you know, the workout porn, like montages is mm -hmm. the, um blogs are are fine but i think like behind the scenes stuff stuff that has interviews and like and mm -hmm. insights is really mm -hmm. important so um there's people that run podcasts at events and it's like you know mm -hmm. if you're you get personalities in the sport whether or not they're competing but they're there and they're a part of it like people's coaches or or if athletes are willing to do it during a competition you know programmers guys like you know like hinshaw or like you mm -hmm. know people have been around for a long time you get some of them on a podcast to discuss aspects of the competition, you know, athletes they know are involved with, like you can get some, some more interesting insights. So those mm -hmm. type of interview style stuff, like behind the scenes and those like shorter form, mid form podcasts are, are fun. And I think that that's content that has, has grown a lot in the kind of wild west sanctional world. Yeah. Um, where media did it was wide open so people yep. just kind of moved in and they were trying to find their, their space i thought those things were um grew a lot those were the things that got a lot of attention and i think that those are the areas that you saw more content creators start to blow up in because mm -hmm. it was like yeah it was stuff that people actually liked and, and consumed yeah i mean it's it's been an interesting year and a half basically now since i started the channel and like started purely with day in the life stuff and then obviously COVID hit and i had no option but to pivot so i started vlogging more and i'm making five vlogs a week and now i'm getting back into the podcast scene and just like trying to feel out what i like and i like the flexibility of being able to create vlogs because it's fun to be able to like document my life a little bit but around athletes i think i've found like the only kind of content i'm interested in is the longer form like walking interview type style like that's what i really like to create you know what i mean like even if i'm hanging out with you or em or whatever like there's less of me wanting to like get in front of the camera with you and do something silly than there is of me just being like curious and being like hey what's this hey what's that hey what's this hey what's that like i find that more fascinating because that's what i used to like to watch yeah and i think you're not alone in that i think a lot of people love to watch that because i think people want to see what makes whatever the subject is different right yeah. or not or what makes them the same and yeah. you're like holy shit like these people are not that different yeah. they're not that special and they just like they have a certain level of commitment or whatever it is but mm -hmm. um I, I agree i think that that's that peak behind the curtain that people crave right so i think mm -hmm. that that kind of content is welcome for sure you're making five vlogs a week yeah yeah that's a lot <laughs> yeah it's been like probably five months now of, of monday to friday every day so and then why you just sleep all weekend? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. You like try to do things that you can't do on camera. Yeah, it's it's challenging, man. That's why you when you gave me shit the other day for that thumbnail. Believe me, I hate myself sometimes too when I have to come up with a title and thumbnail. <laughs> I don't even remember what it was. What was it? It was something to do with froning, and you just it, well, no, it froning was in the thumbnail, but it was something to do with like um like a, a trick or a tip or like something that makes him oh, great. Oh, yeah, and yeah. you're like, Oh yeah, be fitter than the next guy. Big surprise. And I was like, listen, <laughs> buddy, <laughs> you try coming uh, up with a title thumbnail. Dude, if I, that's why, I mean, maybe it's laziness, but that's why I love the, like this. Cause I just title it inside the life of Patrick Vellner yeah. instead of having to pick apart like a, a clip and then Photoshop 12 things of you with your shirt off in the thumbnail to make it work. Like it, it, I like the long form interview stuff because it's like, whether it's a podcast or the day in the life or a behind the scenes series, because it's just more like 
raw and natural and you're not always seeking an agenda to like pull something out of it. You know what I mean? Right. It just feels yeah. more natural, but I don't not know. Like feel, you don't feel like you're trying to find an angle. Exactly. Like every vlog every day, it's like, it doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter how amazing the vlog is in terms of like editing flow and storytelling and like music and all that kind of stuff. If I don't have an amazing title thumbnail that draws you in to click on it, the rest of the video does not matter. Doesn't matter. Nobody's going to watch it. I'll make zero money on it. Did you find that you find yourself trying to figure out how to make everyday things really exciting all the time? <laughs> Dude, I film myself making coffee probably four times a week. Like, yes, absolutely. So does that make you enjoy like really meaningless activities more or less? Um, I wouldn't say it affects my enjoyment. It just, my brain is wired a different way. I look at everything in my life as content potential and like i judge everything i do right now based off can i film it will it be interesting and how can i make it interesting if it's not because like the idea of me heating up my coffee in the morning which is how i started yesterday's vlog that's not interesting but if i do a really really quick cut sequence of like a really close angle of the coffee going in the cup and then a zoom out angle and me pulling the cup away and hitting the microwave button really really hard and shoving the cup in so it splashes a little bit slamming the door shut that's like a boom, 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 boom. And it'll get someone's attention at the beginning of a vlog and they'll be like, whoa, I'm in, you know? So does that like, I guess it's, that's a bit, do you find that that's hard to, to think like that, to constantly be thinking in terms of, of like what this is going to look like on a screen? I guess it's a little different, I guess, because you're not, you're not trying to, you're like trying to figure out interesting ways to edit it or like create, um, I guess, interesting shots out of something that might not be that interesting. Just wondering if it like, do you feel like you have to hype your energy up where you're like, all right, this morning, coffee, cereal. I love cereal. Yes. And you're just like, every day, like to do that three days a week, you're just like, man, never mind. I just want to like sit here and have my coffee quietly. <laughs> Five days a week, man. Yeah. Um, dude, yes. So it, it, people don't understand it, but, and people a lot of the time will give YouTuber shit for like, oh, like it's all an act. It's like, yes, I'm an entertainer. That is what I'm doing. I am trying to entertain an audience. So like the thing with YouTube is usually it's an inflated version of yourself. So you're still being yourself. You're just being the biggest version of yourself possible. So if you listen to my demeanor here versus my demeanor on one of my vlogs, it's, I sound a little bit different because I'm putting a little less emphasis in my voice now. Whereas if I was talking to you on a vlog, it would be a little bit more inclination behind it. And that trickles off into like everything when you're putting that content out there, you're having to be the biggest version of yourself. And that's exhausting. But the real exhausting part, like I said, is just that brain firing of like, not only like you said, with the coffee, like, how am I gonna, how am I gonna make this boring task seem interesting? But at the same time, I'm like, okay, I know I have from 8am, which is basically when I get up until 1pm to shoot an entire vlog. If I don't shoot it in that time, then I won't be able to start editing at 1.30. And if I don't start editing at 1.30, I won't finish the vlog in time to get it out the next day. So it's like that compression too of like having to be like, get your brain to like click together all of these random things that probably aren't interesting on their own. How can I make them interesting? How am I going to edit it? I have to already be thinking about the edit because it has to happen in four hours from now. Otherwise, you know what I mean? That cycle. And then I find usually around today, like Thursdays are my last day of the week. I take Friday, Saturday off because that's when retakes off. It's like the biggest like, like deflation of like everything. Yeah, do you feel like that two days is good? Like you, like it's enough that you're not gonna, you're not feeling like you're burning yourself out a little bit, or you, do you feel like you're, you're like it's getting tough? Because I mean, I feel like it. <laughs> yeah. I, I know, I Michelle's had friends who like got off social media because they got tired of 
feeling like every time they looked at something, they were looking at things in terms of like this little box of like mm-hmm. what they could show someone. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they like, didn't really like that. And, and they weren't, that wasn't their career or profession or their mm-hmm. hobby. Even it was just like, they felt like they all of a sudden were kind of getting sucked into this going down this tunnel and they just sort of got away from it. Yeah. So I'm curious, you know, as someone who earns a living through that, what mm-hmm. is that? You feel that where you're like, Oh, I'm really, I feel like I'm, you know, constantly focused on how I can present something, how I can spin it. Uh, and obviously I know I'm sure taking the two days off is at the very least what you need to refresh yourself. Yeah. But is that just like, do you just not even look at a screen for two days and try to just pretty much, just man. I've had, to, I've, had to get, I've had to get really strict with myself in terms of like, when five o'clock hits and I like re gets home from work, like I allow myself to check my phone on like Instagram and YouTube, the YouTube studio app, which is where I can see all the metrics for my videos max one more time before I go to bed. Because if I don't, it's just like the, the, that doesn't shut off like that, that framing, like you said, framing everything for content. I just start going to the next day. Like my brain just starts going to the next day. The only way I can shut that off is if I like put it away and like force myself not to have it. And so the two days, Dude, it's because the balance of it is, is like the, the style of content creation when you're daily vlogging, when you're making a video every single day, it's a narrative of your life. So it allows you some leniency to not be abundantly creative. Like, it's not like I have to have this crazy storyline every single day where something crazy out of the blue happens. Like people understand this is me trying to make a story out of my normal day. Like that's the, that's the type of filmmaking it is. And I enjoy that. But you still have to have creative juice. Otherwise it's just going to be super boring. Right. And that's the stressor. That's the thing that stresses me out is like, how do I keep evolving? What is otherwise the exact same day over and over and over again? And how do I keep, especially in a pandemic world, how do I keep this fresh and interesting? What title thumbnail ideas can I come up with? Like every day it's like trying to think of a topic because if I don't have a topic, then the rest of the video, no matter how creative it is, doesn't matter. I have to have that thing I can click for the title thumbnail. And so like that kind of like is its own blessing, but those two days off allows for me to decompress and have time to like actually let the creative juices flow. Cause it sounds funny. Like I'm creating a video every day, but I don't feel creative when I'm doing that. Like it feels very muzzled. It's like a forceful creativeness. Whereas in the two days off, I have the opportunity to actually like have ideas. Like I have no ideas when I start. Like, so is that just though? Like you, like you're making your ideas for your in your two days, and then the the next five are just executing said ideas. Yes and no. I never know what I'm going to film in the morning. Never. Like yeah. I pick up the camera and I have no idea what the title is going to be, what the thumbnail is going to be, what the topic is going to be, what I'm going to focus on. I have no idea of any of that unless it's like I'm coming to see you and hang out for a day. Then it's like I have an idea and it's fine. But usually I have nothing. It's like a blank slate. And when, when I have that time, the downtime, it's more like theories and theses. So it's like, I'm not so much thinking like, Hey, here's an idea for Monday. Here's an idea for Tuesday. Here's an idea for Wednesday. I'm thinking like, okay, based off the week that just went, these three videos did well. These two videos did not. What were the commonalities between them? How can I evolve the commonalities of the videos that did well? How can I stop doing the things that didn't perform well in these other videos. Like that kind of part of the creative is refinement. Yeah. is more what it is. There's not enough time to think of ideas for videos. Like that is like, that has to, that has to happen during the day. That has to be active. At least I find um, those two days have to be used to rest and like let my brain settle. Cause that's, that's the thing. Creativity is a funny thing, right? Like it's not something that like, 
I don't know how to like put it into words, but it's like, it's not like you go to sleep and it resets. Like you can burn out creatively, but physically be completely fine. It's just like, you just stop having ideas. And like, that's definitely the fear. And that's definitely why I forced myself to take two days off. I haven't been doing a great job of it recently. I don't think I've taken a full two days off for like four weeks now, but this weekend I'm taking a full two days off. Um, but yeah, it's important. I, I think, think it's, just, hard, it's hard in quarantine. I think that some of what you get to recharge your creative juices is like, chatting with people, hanging out with people, having life experiences. Yeah. So I think in quarantine, that's an especially big concern, right? Yeah. And it's the existential crisis of why aren't I doing more, you know? And like when I'm sitting at home, which is where I, where I make 70% of my videos, you know, the other 30% is pretty much at the gym right now. Anytime I'm sitting here and I'm not making a video, it's like, why am I not doing more to make my videos better? That's kind of the other curse of being the master of your own domain, which I'm sure you as an athlete can relate to in some ways where it's like you always kind of feel like you could or should be doing more. Um, it's a double-edged sword though, man. Cause it's like the more you do, the more, the less time you're putting towards, you know, whatever other things that you should be allotting time to. And at the very least allowing yourself to like rest, recover and better yourself because it's a fine line between producing a lot of content that's good or like good enough and producing too much content. That's awful or not enough content that not enough people are going to see. Like there's, you have to find what works for you and everyone's different. I'm not saying what I'm doing is like the answer. It's just where I'm at right now and what I find works for me. But yeah, man, to answer your question, it's like every, every Wednesday or Thursday, I feel like I'm burned out and I feel like I have to quit. And I feel like next week's it. I can't do this again. Like this has been too much. And then every Monday I'm just like, Oh, let's go. And I just like start. Did you just spend a whole day on like Thursday, just doing like a trick shot. So your Thursday vlog is just like a whole day of just doing trick shots. Yeah. And then it's just like a free day and you get to just chill. And then Friday you put one more in and then it's the weekend. <laughs> the only right when you're getting over that, cu- that hump, you just mail one in and you're like, yeah, pants at a jar for an entire day. <laughs> just zone out. <laughs> Typically man. Be hilarious. No- Typically, those are the videos where if you see if you see the thumbnail and it's me in this seat and like something photoshopped around me, that's those days. That's the days when I don't want to have to get creative outside of this room and I'll just set up the camera and I'll talk about something. So I'll like try to find figure a topic out. So like, I don't know, Patrick Vellner's recovery from his injury or something like that. And I'll go on like a seven minute diatribe on like how your injury affected you in stage one and how you're recovering and why being a top level athlete is, you know, risking these things. And it's such a stressor, whatever it is. And I'll, I'll go on this whole diatribe. Those are like my excuse videos. I like to call them. They're like when I, when I'm just like, so I can't fathom trying to like go to the gym and make another vlog of like basically the same thing. Um, yeah. I don't know. It's interesting, man. And it's hard. It's hard to judge from the inside because I look at it and I'm like, well, the heck are so many people watching these videos every single day? It's the same thing over and over and over and over again, which is doing me no favors to my audience listening to this right now, but it's, it's it, relatable. It's relatable these days. Yeah. Well, and I remember, and I know of daily vloggers and vloggers who I watched the same thing and I, I've been enthralled by it and I'm like, post more, do more. I don't care if it's you walking your dog, like you get involved in someone's life and they become like the character yeah. of the story feels, and you just feels personal too. It feels personal. To yeah. And like they, it's character development. So like they're watching me to see, like I, I'm, I'm a TV show to them, you know, like my life is the plot of a TV show and they're looking to see what unfolds next. Cause they say it's the same thing over and over and over again, but things change. Sometimes I come see you. Sometimes I get a package from Hong Kong. That's, you know, I don't know what it is. And like, there's little things in the day that you can make a 
Seinfeld. Did you ever watch Seinfeld? Oh yeah, big Seinfeld guy. Yeah, so it's a show about nothing. Yeah, it's a sh- dude. It is a show about nothing. Seinfeld was like the original vlog. Like if yes, no no go. word of a lie. If you think of what Seinfeld is, and you think of all the episodes, ninety percent of the episodes are in Jerry's apartment, in the coffee shop, and where else? Like maybe one or two locations every once in a while. It's like me. It's like my show is in my house and in the gym and then sometimes somewhere else. But it's a show about nothing, but people get invested in it because I'll try to make comedic and entertaining quotants out of these like random things I'm doing in my day. Um, yeah, I don't know, man. I'm, you should just, you should get into a career in politics when you're done. You could be just a really sick spin person. Uh, I don't know what that means. Spin person. What does that mean? It's like, it's like when you get news and you try to spin it into like having positive or spin it oh, in a direction that you want to, to I see. portray a message that you want to put out. Right. I feel like after years of like trying to spin your coffee into being entertaining or interesting, like you'll be able to just make anything look however you want it to look. Yeah. It'll be sweet. Well, here's you'll just be the sickest spin media person ever. <laughs> here's the thing, man. Here's why I think I have a, a developed and garnered a skill for this, which is the long form conversations, is because I don't ever come into these things with notes. Like I never think about much before I do it. I just kind of let it go and let it flow. And I've, I think part of what daily vlogging has done is it's garnered me a really good skill of like adaptation in content creation. So like I can play off whatever's happening pretty quickly. Like my brain can like find connections between things and topics and I can bridge conversations and expand on things. Like we've been talking now for 30 minutes about what? Like nothing we intended to talk about. Like, you know what I was said we were going to come on here for, but you know what I mean? Like that wasn't, I didn't come in here being, I had no freaking idea we were going to get here, but we're here. Um, and it's great. Cause I flipped what, it on you and I started interviewing you. Well, that's what this podcast is all. Well, that's not what this podcast is all about, <laughs> but it's all about, it's all about not having the direct direction. And I think a big part of that is, yeah, just like having, being forced the amount of times, let me say this, the amount of times and this will happen over the course of this podcast where I start talking and my brain just like goes away and I have no idea what I'm talking about. Like I just forget, I literally forget where I was going with it. But I find if I just keep putting words out of my mouth, eventually they click and I can have something to say. So like if there's silence in a podcast and like I don't know where to go with it, I literally just start talking and I have no idea what I'm saying. Literally nothing. It's blank up here. But then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, click, 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 click. Oh, here's something. Happened probably, probably three or four times per podcast. I'll do that. <laughs> it's good. That's a good skill to have. Land on your feet. I guess so, man. It's a weird world though, dude. That's why I am very excited for hopefully the ability to like move around again. Cause I yeah. think something that'll keep this podcast is doing good. And I think it's why I'm diving into it more is it definitely keeps the vlogging fresh. Um, just having to change the pace or the content creation in general fresh. But one of the things I'm really looking forward to again is like being able to do day in the life videos again. And like just that it's just different. And like, it keeps everything much more fresh, but that's a tough thing about pandemic for me, which is a blessing to say because a lot of people have been affected in a lot worse ways, but I just, I don't have that ability to change things up as much as I'd like, you know? Well, it's good then working with what you got doing, trying, man, trying. Do you think we're going to have a 2021 season? We'll have some sort of a 2021 season. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. We'll see if it looks like what we want it to look like. Um, I'd be surprised um at this point but i think that we'll have we'll have competition um i've had some conversations with some people in crossfit and i think that regardless of what the 
potential is for live competition. Like they're obviously working towards being able to do that, but there's obvious limitations in place. And, you know, I think that if we're still in a world where we can't have many live competitions, they're going to still try to run some online stuff and qualify people to through to the games. And then, you know, maybe by the games we can have a live competition again if but if not you know you maybe they can run another something um at the ranch or something with smaller field again uh and then hopefully it's the last time we have to deal with that but there's a few things like i know the alliance center in madison has already canceled all of their you know competitions or tour dates or things that they had their various commitments until i think june so that's doesn't bode super well for hosting the games in Madison, but that said, you know, they just had a pretty successful run at the stage two of the games in 2020. So, you know, maybe there's potential to do that again or even grow it slightly if things are still in a bad position and presumably we'll be in a better position by that time, you know, August of next year, end of mm-hmm. July, August of next year. But um, again, I think that it's, it's kind of, we don't want to make any assumptions yet, mm-hmm. but I think that we'll have something to go on. And obviously the big change again, we're looking at open in February, March. And so likely another kind of shorter competition season, more like what the regional system looked like. Mm-hmm. And then um, the games is not supposed to move. So that season again is like the February through to August sort of look. Are you nervous that the open is going to be nothing but air squats, push-ups, and burpees? That'd be great because I can actually do that. Well, he wants to have five. Eric wants to have five hundred thousand plus registrants, which is the most of all time. And right. there's zero chance that the entirety of the world won't have closed gyms by February. And the only way he's going to be able to access the masses would be to not have people have to go to affiliates. So, do you think that it's just going to be a body weight only open if his goal is to spread it that wide? No, I don't think that they would do that. I don't think that they can. Um, I think that there may end up, maybe they build another category for like at home open or something like that. But I think to, to qualify athletes through to a competition season, which they have the intention to do, um, you wouldn't be able to do that. And, and, and then, and then claim that it was like a, an appropriate test. Um, so I don't think that they would, I think that there will have to be some sort of a stipulation or, you know, you might have to if you're seriously committed to competing, maybe you have to find someone, you know, that has a home gym or reasonable setup and maybe everybody does video submissions from like gyms at home that you, so they can clearly see you're not violating any sort of social distancing laws or anything like that. Who knows? Um, but I don't, I don't think that they could do it with all body weight. Frankly, I don't even know what they would do. Um, there's not enough movements to run five. That's, workouts what I'm saying, workouts. that's what I'm thinking. I don't know. That's a good point that you brought up about like the scale tier, like the home tier. I didn't think of that. So that's a good point. That's a good possibility. But I mean, what, what happens if, well, the open's going to be for sure a big qualifier for the season. What happens if like Yonkowski's gym is closed and he has no at home gym? Cause I've seen him just on that like stationary bike during lockdown. Like what happens if he has no access to a gym but this is his theoretic only chance to qualify for events in the season. What do you think they would do? That's a really good question. Um, I, and I, I'm not sure. I, I think that you might have to try, hmm, I don't know. Cause I think it depends. It obviously depends on the different laws and different countries and things like that. Right. Like there's different levels of closure. Like I feel like when I, when our gym was closed during lockdown, 
it was closed, the owners could still go there and do paperwork and things and you could still be in there. But I had also heard of places where if you were even in the building, you could be fine. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so whereas you could say, Oh, maybe they can just go there by themselves, film it, whatever. Maybe they can, maybe they can. Mm -hmm. Um, so I don't know. It's a good question. Um, I would say, yeah, right now there's probably just, it's kind of watchful waiting and it's just hoping for the best that like, you know, we're in a, a definitely a bad, kind of period right now where there's a lot more people sliding into more lockdown state and hopefully after christmas like after, into the new year it starts to be a little bit less that way if people are responsible for the next couple months um but it's a good question and i don't know i don't know the answer to that because it there's certainly a possibility of that and it's something that they'll have to sort out uh, i might have to start thinking about possible solutions in case somebody asks my opinion again <laughs> I mean, you're lucky you got a home gym, so you're, you're pretty much set, but yeah, the, but certainly not everybody does. Right. And I didn't until just recently, totally, I mean, that's, even, even if you do, like sometimes there's limitations to what you have that you can do at home. Right. Yeah, like, man. Try doing muscle ups outside in February. You might have snow. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's a little bit different for everybody. And I think that's one of the big issues with, um, trying to standardize that in a worldwide competition when mm-hmm. conditions are so different all over the world. Um, so yeah, I, I, that's you maybe, you know, hopefully you have a friend that's got a good garage set up and you can go use it. Um, and it, cause at the very, the problem is it might, if, if it's a situation where, you know, a lot of places are still okay, but some places aren't, um, it, and unfortunately might have to be that the people who, the people who are, who can't do it are just left behind. Yeah. And it's like, we're really sorry, but you know, if it's 2% of, of like, elite athletes don't have access to a gym right now. We have to cater to the 98%. We can't cancel the whole season for 2%, Mm -hmm. um, which really sucks for those people. And like, hopefully it's not the case, but um, that might end up being the way it has to go in order for there to be any semblance of a season. If, if the things continue the way they uh, are trending, say right now. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because you know, the point you brought up about the, the at home version is great. And I think that's a great solution for, what 490,000 people but the 1,000 yeah, sure, who are trying sure to, earn- to try to to try to increase their participation and try to cast that broad net that they want to do I, I think that's great mm-hmm. uh, and that would be a great idea but you're right that it's not a cure-all no it's not a cure-all and you know I think the the, the speech and the rhetoric that we've heard coming from the top uh, under the new ownership is that they want to make the games as good as they can be. And they want the games to be this peak of this iceberg that has a great trickle down effect and whatever. So, you know, I can't see them just being like, Oh, well, whatever, we're going to do this for the 990,000. But you know, the 1000 athletes who are trying to qualify for sanctions in the games, we're not going to cater to like, I think they, they, they are going to on some level do their very, very best to cater to, you know, making this accessible. Do you think one of those things, and I, I don't really know if this is, possible solution but do you think they would push it back since they've been so firm on this date if they see things and they're like oh the grass looks greener on the other side i mean isn't that what this whole last year has been but do you see that as a a possible solution or do you think they're going to stick with it no matter what i think they would definitely prefer to stick with it but i don't think that they would i think that if conditions were extreme i don't think there's any reason why they wouldn't push it back they push the games back eight weeks yeah. Um, they just moved the open from October back to February. Like, I don't think that there's any problem pushing it, you know, a month ahead if they had to. Um, 
it might depend on the level of commitment that they have with, you know, other events that they're running, like, mm. like I said, like sem- like semifinal type events, regional type events. Um, but if you're in a condition where the, the world's shut down enough that you're talking about moving an online event, um, you probably are not able to run those live events anyways. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a matter of a month or two after that open. So it wouldn't be interfering at all with those because those would have to be online as well. So you just, if you're, if, like if A is true, then B would have to be online, right? So it wouldn't, it probably wouldn't interfere very much. So you could effectively slide the open as far as you want because um, you're not messing with like venue contracts or things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, because then if I just had to shift my online regional a couple of weeks over, it, it really doesn't matter at all because there was no, there was no, um, no drag and no overhead in terms of like facilities or things like that. Logistically, it's very simple. Yeah. The only, the only restriction I think I see for CrossFit in pushing it back is they've talked about obviously wanting this to be the biggest open. And part of that they've admitted is media content and, you know, publication marketing for the open. And if they push that hard in the next couple of months to market it and they have a date, that's where the, a lot of the problem will come in is changing that date. Then if they put out that much awareness, like if they like say they invest, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars into making, this known and making the open bah, this big thing it's like there's a lot of people who see it and get it and then push back hey, you know it just might mess with it i don't know if it'd be enough for sure to like not have them make the decision but i definitely see it as although there's no infrastructure cost i think there's there would definitely be some you know lost lost revenue potential if they have to like rescind yeah. all those marketing dollars maybe i mean it might it might just be if it pushes back you might have to just fill that next gap with another thing to to remind and and say the new dates but i I think that at the end of the day you want to be they want to be a socially responsible company as well and Mm -hmm. i think that you know if conditions are a certain way i'm sure that it wouldn't be um the end of the world for them to do it obviously they i'm sure the preference would be to have things be great Mm -hmm. Uh, everybody would prefer that but um i think that even what they did in the last year has shown that like they can react and they can try to pivot and and do things when they need to so you know, I, I don't think there's any reason to suspect that if things were dire, they wouldn't react in a way that was, you know, socially uh, responsible and appropriate given the climate. Yeah. So Pfizer just finished their human trials, 40,000 people across the world, all different age gaps, pre-existing conditions, non pre-existing conditions, and it finished around 95% effective. And they claim they have good refrigeration abilities <laughs> to, to bring the product out. Do you think, and what are your, what are your thoughts on the vaccine for making our season more possible? I think it's, I mean, it's super promising. It's it by far is better than having no treatment option, right? Mm-hmm. Or no, or, or no, we currently, I guess, don't really have a great treatment option, but this is prevention. Um, we have whatever Trump was taking, man. Yeah. I mean, but yeah. Anyway, that dude, way, 70 years like old, McDonald's fat, kick COVID in three days. That's crazy. Right. But I suppose if you're looking at the alternative of, do I take a preventative aid 
to try to confer some sort of immunity <laughs> totally, or do totally. I, do I get hospitalized in the U S and like run the risk of yeah, like yeah, those, yeah. those treatments that he got were probably quite expensive. Might <laughs> Dude, I have no um, idea, but it's, it's absolutely, whatever it was, there's no denying that it is a miracle that probably one of the most unhealthy people on planet earth. Who's like, <laughs> I think he's like two years off the expected life expectancy. He's like 70 something. And he's like two years off of it. I think he's 76 at 78 or something like that. He get COVID in like three days. How is that like that? Oh, that blew my mind. Impressive. <laughs> Impressive, <laughs> Donny. Anyways, keep going about vaccines uh, um, in the season. I think there's there's lots of hurdles, right? Like I think that like logistic rollout for vaccines is is going to be a major barrier. Uh, not barrier, but it's going to be something to consider. Um, there's a lot of questions that go into it. I mean, for us in Canada, it's different than what it is to the U S than what it is to, you know, some areas of Europe. Um, but everybody's going to have a different rollout plan. Uh, and there was initially, I thought, I think the research currently on people who get infected with COVID and then kick it, uh, they were saying that you can still, a lot of them were able to get reinfected after a period of about four months or so. So you were getting an immunity and antibodies, but they weren't, it wasn't in depth. Like you had a lifeline or a timeline to that where you could potentially get reinfected eventually. So when I first heard of the uh, vaccination, one of the first hurdles I thought was, how do you roll out this vaccine fast enough that it can catch enough people um, before the first people who are vaccinated start to lose their immunity? But doing some reading on it, it sounds like the what they've got right now, they think is about an 18-month um, lifeline or life timeline on that. Um, so that's great because I think a lot of what we were hearing in Canada is that the rollout's going to take like a year's time. Um, obviously starting with a lot of frontline workers, things like that, um, people who are high risk, uh, and then just moving through it, it takes a lot of time to vaccinate an entire population. And we have a significantly smaller population than a country like the U S. Um, now there being a lot more private medicine, you're going to pay for your vaccine. So it depends who can go do that, right? Uh, so there's a lot of question, I guess, as to whether, what, what level of control do you want to have on this? And it raises some pretty fun, you know, philosophical questions about, yeah. uh, and ethical questions, where it's like, okay, so it, if we're trying to really shake, like shake down the whole country, um, we can't force people to get vaccines, but do we, we, do we have to allow people to participate in, you know, group things in society if they don't have it so like if you want your gym to be open is your gym allowed to say okay but you can only come to classes if you've got your vaccine and i don't know what it is you get yourself a bracelet when you get your vaccine it tells microchip bro microchipped and yeah so you there's questions as to whether like you know how do you how do you make this work and yeah in the in the mean that there's basically like what would be ideal to make sure we kick this thing as fast as possible mm-hmm. what's ideal for making like life as tolerable as it can and, and acknowledging everyone's needs and then the answer lies somewhere in the middle <laughs> probably yeah. right but so there's a lot of questions like that like let's say we want to run online or we want to run live competitions and this vaccine's out um when you register for the season do you have to check a box that says you've been vaccinated and you can compete at this live event um you know, do live events want to assume the risk of not letting certain people in if they haven't been vaccinated? If you haven't been vaccinated, do you have to prove that it's because you have an allergy to these vaccines or something mm-hmm. like that? Anyway, there's it's quite an interesting. I've talked to a lot of people who are involved, or a few people, some friends of Michelle's who are uh, involved in like the the government side of the innovation and science, and and they, 
you know, it's cool to hear what they have to say about this kind of stuff because it's not quite as simple as, you know, oh, we've got a vaccine now, the day is saved. Mm-hmm. Um, we're actually a long way from that. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, knowing that there's a vaccine uh, coming out is actually can cause people to behave a little bit more recklessly. All of a sudden, you know, oh, there's a vaccine out. I don't have it yet, but probably some people have it. So I can travel now. I can do mm-hmm. this. I can do that. And uh, I don't need to be as careful. And so there's there's a, a risk kind of involved in having this this treatment strategy say that, uh, yeah, like, you know, it, it could actually cause a significant uptick in, in cases before it starts to solve yeah. everything because you don't have everybody with it yet. So there there is some of that that I think we need to make sure we, we sort of behave carefully and and uh, and appropriately still for a period of time. But it's way, I mean, it's way, it comes with its baggage, obviously. Mm-hmm. It's not an instant fix, mm-hmm. but it is a fix. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, it's super great to see that we've, we've been able to do that and uh, there's something coming for, you know, basically for 2021. Yeah. I, and I think that's why this conversation was one I wanted to have because it is, you know, it's very easy in a lot of people's minds to, yeah, associate the, fi- the fact that Pfizer officially, I mean, they still have to be peer reviewed um, and then granted emergency distribution rights or whatever by the FDA and for us, the Canadian Health Agency. But for the most part, they have a vaccine that works now, you know, and no major side effects. They've followed all like the whatever, the 40,000 has been tested since July. So it's like, oh, we beat COVID. But it's like there's a lot more, I think, to it than meets the eye and a lot of people see. But to dovetail back, one of the things I've seen is that with the reinfection rates, the reason why we're seeing them is, again, this is what I read, but the reason why we're seeing them is because obviously it's just people who are getting reinfected who are being tested for reinfection. So if you get infected with the virus and you don't get reinfected, you don't get tested. So you don't show up. Whereas if you get reinfected, you get tested. And apparently they're saying it's like pretty small percentage, like 2% or less. Um, Granted, COVID is only killing 1% of the population and we're still very, very concerned about that. So it's not like it's an insignificant number. Um, Do you think though that the sick and the old in the front line get the vaccine and the rest are just able to run rampant? No. Um, No, I think that's super irresponsible. Uh, we still, I think that there's still a lot of research being done on what long-term effects look like to exposure and infection. Um, and there is evidence showing that, you know, if you have an infection and you recover from it, you're a young, healthy person, you may still have some effects in your lung tissue for we don't know how long. Let's say now, as a result of you getting COVID and recovering from it, you may be at an increased risk to something like COPD, emphysema, like restrictive lung diseases in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, so like that information still is uncertain. And I think that I, I certainly am not willing to risk that mm-hmm. um, by saying like, ah, forget it. It doesn't matter. Um, you know, there's people who have recovered, but still experienced symptoms for many, many months. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, if that, that's your prerogative, I guess, I, I certainly wouldn't think that that's what you would want to do. Um, especially when you can still pass, like you're still a vector for all that kind of stuff. I think that if you let, yeah, I don't, I think that that's a, just a very responsible approach. Um, given that we, there's still a lot that we don't know, um, putting yourself at an unnecessary exposure risk to an illness is just, it's just that it's just unnecessary and kind of 
Yeah, I said, I, I certainly wouldn't recommend that. Uh, and I think that there will be obviously a priority and a pecking order in this where, yeah, if you're a frontline order or a frontline worker who's either working with sick populations, whatever, you're an essential service, uh, you're dealing with a lot of people. Yeah, they probably will get some priority. People who are high risk of, of you know, experiencing advancing symptoms or, you know, dying from this will probably get it. And then you're, if you're low risk, you're going to be lower on the list and you might have to wait and just like bear with it for a little while. Um, maybe there's a, maybe there's an application process where, you know, if you need it, if you're a young person, but you need it to run your business, maybe you can get it. You can jump ahead of certain ways. I don't know, but that's the thing. Like these things will certainly take time. Like to inoculate an entire population takes, takes time. Um, and we also don't have like, infinite doses right um yeah. we've got to still secure a lot of doses i know the u.s has done a lot uh, got a lot already but like i don't think canada has you know enough to give the whole population yet no we so have 20 we have, we have 20 million of pfizer initially coming in early 2021 if it like meets all its approval but it's a two-dose vaccine so that means a third of our population will be able to get it initially but there's also a 28 day period until it's effective and a 21 day period from first dose to second dose so you know even if it gets rolled out there's still a minimum 28 days before even the people who get vaccinated are going to be effectively able to like combat it so i mean that'll be interesting do you in the meantime because i think the big conversation right now is like how are we dealing with it until then and like what are your kind of general thoughts on continued lockdowns and like, you know, in BC, them shutting down group fitness classes or in Vancouver, I should say, like, are you, I mean, we don't have to get too political with it, but are you, um, what are your kind of general tough. thoughts? Like, it's, it's hard for everyone. Yeah. And it's just like, it's not, it's certainly not ideal. And I, and I'm like, you were kind of saying earlier in our conversation, like, fortunately, I, I haven't been affected to a crazy degree. Um, like I still can work at my clinic like the flow is a little less and we're super careful and we have a ton of extra protocols in place to keep things safe um but we're still able to work and like i can still train and i can still you know do my social media and whatever mm -hmm. um but a lot of people can't right and they don't have that luxury so i it's hard for me to speak on it because i speak from a position of extreme privilege right um and it'd be really easy for me to just say oh yeah i know you certainly have to you have to lockdown and do it and blah 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 um i think that you know you have to exercise a, a degree of responsibility and, and just like um and be socially like socially responsible like you don't need to be a, doing unnecessary things i think early even early on in the lockdown thing i remember talking to my partner michelle about it and she was talking about uh they had they had some sort of a uh, educational thing on it and, and somebody just mentioned like in terms of contact tracing that kind of stuff if somebody asked you or if you got contact traced like today mm -hmm. um, like would you be embarrassed to tell everybody what you had done or how many people you had been exposed to and whatever mm -hmm. um, and I think like trying to kind of live that way has been good yeah. Um, to just say like hey you know am I am I doing things unnecessarily or frivolously like like, can I live without that? And like, yeah, it's, it sucks. A hundred percent. It sucks, but it sucks for everybody. And it's not, it's, it's, I don't know. I, I certainly don't struggle with having to spend extra time at home. Like I'd love to go have drinks with my friends, but I don't. Mm -hmm. um, Cause I, I, I see that as just like a selfish thing to do. Mm -hmm. If I was 21, would I think differently? Probably. Mm -hmm. So 
I just like, I, I don't know. I, it's hard and everybody has to figure it out for themselves. It's certainly very difficult depending on your business. It sucks for um, small businesses right now, especially because a lot of the aid is starting to kind of wear thin. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. I'm hopeful that we saw this coming, you know, with the back to school and flu season stuff. Everybody knew that it was going to be a problem. Um, and so I think it was just, it took a little longer to, to rear its head than maybe we expected. I would have probably thought the early uptick would have been in October, mid-October, not mm-hmm. mid-November. Mm-hmm. But we're seeing it now. And I think that all we can do is react and continue to try to slide our, our security measures and our lockdowns to what's needed and then try to survive in the meantime. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. Fuck, we've, we've hung on for like nine months now. Like what, if you got another two months so you can get a vaccine, just hang in there. Yeah. Like it, it's, it's unfortunate and it's really hard, but I, I don't know. I think that it's, it's sort of risk you have to assume for yourself. And I think that you have to be really careful not to assume to know anyone else's condition either. Right. Like if mm-hmm. you're the person who you are healthy and you're, you're taking your product, your, your safety seriously, but you have to work and you have to like go out and do things. It's totally acceptable. And I get that you've got to support your family and you've got to like run your business. Um, but you know, if somebody is saying that they can't come in or they don't feel safe there or they, whatever, because they're worried about it, you can't belittle other people's experience because you don't know their level of, you know, suppression or, you know, comorbidity or whatever it might be that they, the level of risk that they feel, so it is, it's challenging. Like I, I think the best you can do is try to understand everyone's positions and just like try to come up with creative solutions for people if you can. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause it's, that's, if nothing else, I think that this period has helped us get a little creative with how we can try to live our daily lives and stay sane. Yeah, absolutely, man. I think, you know, I think the, the question I'm interested in is like, where, where does choice come into play? And like, where, where is government's power you know, where should it stop in, in situations like this, where we have this pandemic and, you know, everything's going on. And with what we know about it now, which is not a lot, it's, it's enough, but it's not a lot. It's not, we don't have crazy amounts, but we're still learning things every day. And the, you know, the people who are pushing the big red buttons are in a position that I would never want to be in. And I say that every time I talk about this, because I am by no means saying that, like, I feel like I have answers or I would ever want to be in the position where you're making decisions that affect millions, hundreds of millions of people's lives. Like that's, that's, I sympathize with the decision makers immensely, but where does the individual choice come in in the sense that like, you know, there are those in their ivory towers who are looking down and being like, lock down, close all businesses, blah, blah. But they're also like, you know, John Legend and Chrissy Teigen who are like multimillionaires living in LA and they don't have to work or they can work from home or whatever it is. You know, like there are us portions of us who are more privileged than others. And there are also people who are bleeding every day and like losing a business they spent their entire life building and that they'll have nothing to come out of this pandemic with. Now in Canada, maybe it's a little less dramatic because I think our aid has been significantly better than the aid that has been given to like American businesses. But that idea of like choice and being able to be like, okay, listen, I totally get everything, all my risk, the risk I'm putting my family at, whatever. But if I can't keep my business alive, I might as well be dead because I'll have no way to make money after this. Where, where does the choice, where do you think the choice kind of comes in on an individual level? Um, I mean, at the end of the day, I think everything's like the individual's choice, but I, I think that it's a bit different now. Like, the difference between say like this period now and what it's going to be like in three months time when there's an actual treatment option Mm -hmm. or there's a prevention option 
um, that's going to be significantly different. I think what's going to be interesting to see and hopefully not jarring is when, when there is a vaccine and people choose not to get it, mm-hmm. then what's the choice? Mm-hmm. Like, okay, well now should you be allowed to like run your business and do whatever you want and blah, 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 even though you are choosing to not take a risk or harm reduction measure seriously, that's like going to, that's objectively beneficial um that like that's where maybe you could see government making some sort of rules about like hey if you're gonna do this or that like you do need to have your vaccination or like i said evidence of a reason why you can't have your vaccination because we do need to rely on herd immunity for a lot of this stuff but um that's where you know you could maybe you could maybe have a, a like an actual you can government government could take a stance or something on that mm-hmm. um but yeah i don't know i think that it, it's it it's really tough and i think that uh i don't know i mean i i have a tough time right now with the decisions to close down restaurants and small gyms amid rising COVID numbers. I am all for telling people not to party and not to gather with other people. And that is all non, to some level, non-essential stuff and stuff that like, doesn't like it's, you can get by without it. Like you need social interaction or whatever. And like, there, there, there are ways to do that, I guess. But the partying that I'll listen to the government all day long. I haven't seen more than one or two people at a time in like a year. Like it's, it's fine. I'm okay with that. The part where I struggle is when it's like, yeah, it's like you, you have to close down your restaurant. It's like, okay, our case is really spreading at restaurants. Like, is there real data to show that a CrossFit class is, you know, causing multiple, multiple outbreaks? Like I get if one gym has a problem, they should have to shut down for two weeks. But why does that cause every other gym that's taking really, really appropriate safety protocols? Like take NCR, for example, like that's one we both know pretty well. Like I'm sure they are at the forefront with, Pete and, and and his wife Jen and all that to be on top of preventative measures and I've seen their box situation it's like so spread out like you know that is where I struggle is when those people are told to to shut down and kill their livelihood especially when it's something like a gym which is you know we know a great way to reduce the in a lot of people to reduce the intensity of symptoms is to be healthy you know so it's a vessel in some level to to help the problem not not increase it well, yeah, except that it's passed by droplets. So if you're breathing heavy and spraying mm-hmm. all over the place, for sure, for sure, that's totally a vector as well for spread. Yep. I would just say, like, the, the the trouble is, I agree with you that it's like you know, one bad apple spoils the bunch, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is a shame. And it, it, like, you could have most people, like ninety percent of those, whatever business type business it is, doing a great job mm-hmm. trying to harm reduce as much as they can having the best protocols they can have in place but having one place um you know flagrantly do whatever they want uh can really ruin it for everybody and the problem is it's like how much can you trust yeah uh like how so how much do you do you trust your average neighbor um to be doing as good as you are as good as like you would you the highest standard you want to hold um, and it is really, it's really hard to trust. And it's hard as the longer it goes, the harder it is mm-hmm. because like everyone's burning out of this thing. COVID for sure. fatigue, man. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And so, and that's where it's just like, that's where the big challenge is. And you're like, you know, and like, it, it's, it's hard to trust. Like I, you know, I, 
I talk to patients all the time and like take histories and things like that. And like, mm -hmm. it's hard to trust what people say about things sometimes. Cause everyone yeah. wants to like look good or say yep. it the right thing and things. So it's, it's, it's tough. It's really tough. And that's why I think it's, you, you need people to personally, everyone to personally shoulder responsibility. And that's just a really, it's a really tall order. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, like you were saying too, like there's some people who are in a position where it's really easy to say, you know, you're sitting way up here and say, well, obviously you should be doing this, this, and this mm -hmm. because it doesn't even apply to them. And then you have other people who are really struggling and, and then you have everything in between. You have some people who are way up here and they're saying, Oh, there's nothing even wrong. Like no problem. Mm -hmm. And you have people who are way down here who are, you know, doing everything they can because they feel like, because of socioeconomic status, various other risk factors, like they feel vulnerable and at risk. So mm -hmm. they're willing to do everything they can, despite the fact that it's hurting them economically. So you have every kind of aspect going mm -hmm. on all at once. Um, that's what's so hard about it is it's just like people seem it's so, it's so divisive that uh, it's really tough. But that's why I, I, I don't know, I, I have a hard time thinking about it, because it is really hard to put yourself in someone's shoes, especially that as like, someone who's a small business owner who's really struggling. And that's why I like, I don't, I, I don't, you know, condemn anybody for doing, for trying to keep their business open and things mm -hmm. like that. As long as you're trying to do everything you can to, you know, to keep it safe and say like, if you can, if you can look at somebody and say, look, I'm going to keep my business to open, but I'm doing this, this, and this to keep everyone safe. And those are reasonable measures. Oh, hell yeah. hundred percent do it. Yeah. I love that. Um, and like, so for me, it's just like, I'm going to try to do everything that I can do on a personal level to make sure that I'm, you know, reducing harm wherever I go and not putting people at risk unnecessarily. And then hopefully other people are doing the same, right? Yeah, totally. And I think it's just like, it's trying to, I think that nowadays, especially with, you know, what's going on in U S elections and COVID and everything like that, it feels like there's so much divisiveness that like, mm -hmm. I think that the best thing you can do is just try to understand people's positions and say like, all right, that's not what I would do, but I'm not you and I'm not living your condition. So, you know, I, whatever, like you, I, I get like when people are worried or scared of it, like maybe you have good reason to be, and I don't know that because I don't mm -hmm. know you and I'm not in your head. So I can't, I can't like call you like a sheep and get mad at you and condemn you over something like that. Like, I don't know. Mm -hmm. And likewise, like the guy who's trying to open their business and do this and that, like you can't tell them they're being reckless and blah, blah, blah. Maybe they aren't. Maybe they're mm -hmm. doing every safety protocol they can to try to do it, but they're just, they just need some revenue to keep their business afloat for another few months. Like mm -hmm. there's just, there's so much going on that um, I think that it's been, there's been a little bit people have been too quick to jump down other people's throats over it without trying to understand why they do the things they do. And, so I think that, I don't know, if we can just be a little better at that, it'll, it'll help these tensions a little bit. Dude. And then I think everyone will be better for it. Dude, I think that's the story of the, of the, yeah, the universe of, of Western society right now is this like crazy mentality of like, you're a horrible person if you make one mistake by like trying to do something that maybe you were a little less educated towards or you were ignorant towards. You just didn't understand. And then like you jump down their throats for like, Oh, that's a cancel culture. Same thing. That's a whole, that's a whole separate conversation. But I think, yeah, like the 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 idea of a restaurant owner putting up, spending six. There was a story that came out in Toronto a while ago when they went back into lockdown of like this restaurant owner who had spent like six and a half thousand dollars on plexiglass. Like it's no cheap investment, and he did everything that you could possibly do. Every table was boxed into its own little plexiglass window, and all the servers had masks and face shields, and like 
all this stuff. And it's like, you know, it, if you really stopped and looked at it and were like, is this business causing more harm than good? It's like, probably not. Like they're, they're doing everything right. Like you said, and should the government be able to be like, you can't do that. Even though clearly they are doing everything to the best ability that we understand how, again, there are obviously things we don't understand. You know, it's a lot of, a lot of levels, people don't really realize how ineffective or not ineffective, sorry, but in a, yeah, ineffective people wear masks. Some people just wear bandanas. And it's like a bandana from what we know with, yeah, particles and droplets and all that. Like it's not, their only real way for a mask to be super effective is if you wear it properly, you know, and a lot of people just don't understand that. But if you're doing a lot of the things that are understood to be best practices, that's where I struggle with, with governments telling you, you can't keep going. Like, why right. And I mean, here's the thing. So I'm, I'm not an expert in, um, you know, government legislation yeah. or yeah, in epidemiology you know, or, yep. or a virology and infectious diseases but um again i think that the hard part is if you're the government like how much can you trust every individual business mm -hmm. the best way to know that you're keeping people secure is is to to lock it down so mm -hmm. let's say you're the restaurant owner you've got all the protocols in place um but your chef tested positive like a week ago and he just didn't tell you yeah um, cause I've heard of that, like people finding out oh, yeah. employees had a positive test and they didn't tell somebody. Yeah. Cause they want to keep and going they, to work and they feel fine. They want to, so it, that is a huge problem yeah. that the owner didn't actually even know about. And that's again, like, what's the level of trust? Like the, mm -hmm. if the employee feels like, well, I don't feel that bad. You know, they're just an asymptomatic carrier. Yeah. Can I keep this under wraps for two weeks and then I'm all good and I'll just be careful. I'll just be really careful. It's cool. No harm, no foul. Like, is that okay? Right. Yeah. Good point. Like, man. so now that, that becomes the question. So how do you make sure that that can't happen? The mm -hmm. only way is to close down all restaurants. Mm -hmm. Right. So like that's, and that's why, like you said, I certainly don't envy the person who's got to make the call. Mm -hmm. um, Cause you're not a popular person with anybody. Nope. Um, so, and, it, and it's not as simple as being like, well, obviously we just need to like shut down everything until everyone's good. And like, you know, you hear, well, technically right off the bat, if we just closed everything off and for 14 days, like the whole thing would be over. Like, I guess. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I live on Vancouver Island. Like we yeah. heard talks of that. Like, why don't we just shut everybody, everybody out? Like, yeah. we like, fuck you yeah. guys. <laughs> yeah. we, like we, we could be living normal lives. Yeah. But like, it's just, it, it's not that simple. Right. And I, and I think it's important to remember that, that there are, everybody is, individually motivated and and somewhat selfishly motivated right so sometimes you see little incidences like that that pop up and maybe it ended up okay maybe it didn't but you know mm -hmm. some of those places like a gym like a restaurant you know if you're a server and you were trying to keep that under wraps how many people did you see that day or did you if you contact trace and i asked you hey nate um do you, are you do you feel confident or comfortable with how many people you were in contact with in the last mm -hmm. like day and you're a server who had that situation and you came in contact with a hundred people mm -hmm. um that stuff really quickly becomes a bigger outbreak right so mm -hmm. that's to me that's the question is it's like yeah yeah there's certainly ideals and and but the question is always like how much how much can you trust uh and if if the answer is like ah i don't know not a ton mm -hmm. then the next step is like well, well then what do you do if you can't trust and then that's where the closures are. Like that's yeah. where they're just like, we have, we can't risk it. Like what's the risk reward ratio in that situation. So um, it is tough, but I agree with you. Like it's, I don't, I don't know. And, and 
I think that the phases, like having phases of closure is a good thing where you can kind of have a stepwise. It's like having a concussion protocol, right? Mm -hmm. Like where you're like, all right, if we make it to this many weeks and everything's okay, we're going to reopen and then we'll reevaluate at 20 days. And if things are still cool, we'll reopen another stage. And then, you know, if things are bad, we'll slide back a stage. And I think that that sort of stuff works to have layers of protection or, you know, levels of society that are open, but it sucks if you're the person who's, you know, on the bubble in terms of what, uh, what level of society your industry services and you're constantly being closed and being closed. Or I've seen some cities that have uh, districts now where given whatever your boundary is, Montreal is doing this, like you could have this district is orange, this district is, is red. So I could be running a bakery, say, on whatever street, but I'm on the west side of the street, so mine's open, and my buddy who runs a bakery on the east side of the street is closed. Like, and you have to sit across the street and look at them be open like that. Like, so it's it's hard, and I don't yeah. think there's a right, there's not a right answer, objectively no. black and white, right? Nope. So it's really, yeah, it's a it's a mess. Yeah, man, it's an it's an unfortunate position for those people to be in. I give it the analogy of like the big red buttons all the time. It's like there's a decision maker or two or three sitting there with a table of like, say, 10 red buttons. And each of those red buttons, when it starts flashing, the only way to stop it from flashing red is to hit it. And by hitting it, you shut off that button. But the button has probably 20 other smaller buttons underneath that if you were able to take the time and look at each button, you know, if you shut off fitness, boom, because a spin class had an outbreak because they're swinging sweat around and droplets are flying everywhere in a really closed contained space, way more so than a CrossFit gym. But you shut down everything. It's like, well, maybe all these gyms were doing an okay job. But it's it's the idea of like you got to understand that these people making these decisions are not out to get you in a lot of ways. They're just making decisions. And they have to. They they can only hit that button. They don't have time to go look inside every little button and find all the other buttons. Like there's, they yeah. have to have some level, like you said, of just like, well, you know, the only way to ensure this doesn't happen again, pop, like you know, shut that button off. So. I completely yeah. sympathize with a man and it's in, like I said, well, here's an analogy of like what I was saying about like, can you trust those like on an individual level that people aren't going to sometimes, sometimes try to, you know, skirt the rule a little bit. Mm-hmm. It's like, if you're a parent and you've got your like toddler and a box of cookies and you're like, Hey, I'm going to leave the room. Don't take any cookies. Yeah. Like, do you really feel like you can trust them or do you just move the cookies onto the top shelf? Yeah. Totally. And it's like, sometimes you just like, maybe you, you trust them a couple of times and there keeps being outbreaks and then eventually you just move the cookies. <laughs> so it's, it's like, it's tough, right? I don't know. I, like there's no, you could talk about it in circles forever. And I yeah. think that it's, it's really, there is no way to, yeah. Like there's going to be economic strain. I'm hopeful that, you know, with the change in administration in the U S maybe there's a different level of relief that comes for some of those businesses struggling there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't know. We've been certainly quite fortunate in Canada, mm-hmm. relatively speaking. Yep. So again, it's it's kind of hard to speak to the condition of everybody who's maybe listening, right? So I don't know. Totally, totally, man. Yeah, and I'm no, and I'm no expert. Once again, not an expert. No, in neither of us, dude. Ne- no, not at all. We're just two dudes talking. You just happen to be one of the smarter of the uh, people I could have talked to on this subject because you have a <laughs> doctor wife and you read a lot, so it's yeah. all good. Um, yeah, it's fascinating, man. I've heard cases, one case specifically a close friend whose place of work, which is a retail location had a positive test and were allowed to stay open for the entirety of that person's sickness because they traced back their interactions and deemed that there wasn't enough risk to have to close down. And the government was okay with that, 
which kind of blew my mind because it was a big box retail store. And it's like, that could definitely afford to close down for two weeks and probably should have. And if it was a gym or if it was a restaurant, they probably would have had to close for two weeks. So it's like, it's fascinating. And that, that begs the question of like, is there any, you know what's is there cool any... is they have, I think they have contact tracing apps now. Yeah, they do. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, but I think everybody needs to have it really for it to be. Effective. Yeah. And people don't want but it because they don't like, want the government tracking them. Yeah. Right. Cause <laughs> I care where the, if the government knows where I am. But uh, you, what you would do is like you could um, in that situation, let's say everybody has this app and nobody's mm-hmm. worried about conspiracy. Um, you could effectively like see, okay, this person was in contact with over the course of that day, these 10 people and you just, they, those 10 people get notified right away and then you, they all get tested. Okay. Mm-hmm. None of them were positive. Just that one girl was positive. The one guy, the retail person. Um, okay, cool. That person's home. Anybody that they were in contact with over the course of that day, all tested negative. Hey, we're all good. Mm-hmm. Um, you totally could do that. But yep. obviously for every person that's not on the app as a whole, yep. uh, and then you run into problems. But um, so like there, there's systems that could work quite well and the technology is there. It's just mm-hmm. like, it needs buy-in, right? Yeah. It needs adoption. And then, you know, people. even for us in BC, it's harder to get testing. We don't have the same yeah. kind of testing as they have in, you know, um, Alberta or Quebec or places mm-hmm. like that. Like they, Michelle's sister is a social worker and she like, she'll get tested. She's been tested several times um, just for various different things. And it, it's easy to do. And it's fast and easy to get. Whereas yeah. like I, I, if I, wanted to and i was like kind of sick i probably still couldn't get a covid test in yeah. bc Is that, well yeah. you just like you need to hit some very specific criteria i've heard of um, lots of people getting saying, turned away here for tests yeah, and lots of people saying if, you're, if you're sick like stay home don't yeah. pretend you have covid like if you're sick yeah. you have covid so yeah. just stay home you, yeah. you don't need to come to the clinic and, and be in an interact with 10 other people in order for us to tell you you have it like mm-hmm. just just pretend you have, you have it, it. Um, but so that, and again, that works because it's limiting exposure, but you know, it also probably skews numbers a ton. And then it's like, yeah. I think that it holds people, probably a fair amount of people that are, um, that don't, that don't have COVID. It makes them stay home in quarantine for unnecessary amounts of time when they could mm-hmm. be working. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's got this high, high, high sensitivity, but like low specificity. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'll be really interested at the end of this, well, at the end of this, whenever, you know, if there's a vaccine, whatever role that we kind of move past it and tests maybe are more available. I would love to get tested at some point, you know, knock on wood. Hopefully I don't have to before then just to see if I did have it, see if the antibodies are there. That's something I think a lot of, you know, young fit people may be curious to find out is like, did it pass through me without knowing? Cause I kind of always assume that it could be and i think that's the smart thing for people like us like young quite fit people is you know don't put yourself in situations where if you had if you were thinking you might have covid you'd be really concerned about right like a limited interactions with old sick people and limited interactions with groups and all that kind of stuff just under the assumption that you never know because you don't but i'd be curious to see if at the end of it if if at some point it did pass through and you just like didn't know like were you actually an asymptomatic carrier and whatever yeah they need better testing for that right now Mm -hmm. um the antibody tests rapid antibody tests are terrible well and don't the antibodies because i know you talked about um being able to get reinfected so from what i've read it's the antibodies fall off pretty quickly like 22 to 28 days or something like that the antibodies fall off but then you have t-cell 
immunity that builds and then that lasts longer. Do you know, does that make any sense? Am I saying anything that's real here or am I just lying? Yeah, I mean like T cells are a real thing and stuff like that. I don't, I don't know specifically how the immunity for this works. Again, this is not um, like often antibodies or like your cells that initially fought the infection will convert into like plasma cells or B yeah. cells or like that. But there's like, there's a whole, my immuno, uh, my immunology is rusty to say the least, but um, yeah, it could be. And I, presumably your antibodies would start high and then they would dwindle over time. Um, but your body maintains these like memory T cells and stuff so that then if you get infected again, you have a more rapid response. So it's like the difference between like an innate, um, uh, an innate um, response and like a memory response. But the, yeah, I don't, I don't know for sure how long they last. Um, and so, you know, those, those antibody tests, if you got it right afterwards, you would have a higher sensitivity, mm-hmm. but you know, as it wears out, if it's a month after you had your infection, it would be less sensitive. And, you know, I think I was reading recently that they were like, they were like 30% sensitive or something like that. Like if you, like you would have to, you'd have to take the test four times to get like a good reading on what you, or whether you had it or not. Um, but if you, if you test as positive, it's because there are antibodies there, but there's a high rate of false negatives. So, um, anyway, Interesting. That's sort of, do you think so that's, that's why it's not great. Like it, it could give you, it doesn't catch as many it, Like, this is like the difference between what I was saying, what BC was doing, saying, if you're sick, just stay home. Cause you mm-hmm. probably have COVID. Like yeah. that policy is like very high sensitivity where mm-hmm. it's going to catch everybody that has COVID. And it's also going to catch a bunch of people that don't. Yeah. <laughs> Um, whereas the rapid antibody test is the opposite it's really low sensitivity so if you if it tells you it's positive it's because you are mm-hmm. or, or like not that you're sick but that you have antibodies yeah. you were sick um but if it tells you you're not it's not necessarily because you're not <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah exactly so that like and that's kind of a, so that's not a great test for this kind of scenario when you're trying to control um things again for an antibody test not really a big deal because you're presumably you're outside of your infection range mm-hmm. um, and you, these are just testing for antibodies. And again, if you're testing false negative, it might be because um, it's later on in your infection where mm-hmm. you're, so you have less antibodies to detect. But that being said, that's why like rapid antibody testing that I think people are using kind of, I think they started using as like for people traveling, things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. There's a high rate of false negatives and it's, it's, not, it's not really great high quality testing yet. So there needs to be a, a lot of advancement in that before it's really like quite good or reliable at least when you talk about buy-in because i think that's going to be a big thing and it is we see it with like apps and all that kind of stuff the buy-in that comes with the vaccine specifically are you concerned we're going to have a massive uptick in anti-vaxxers or do you think it's going to be the current people who don't vaccinate for you know all the measles and all that kind of stuff that are going to be the ones that are against it because it's like you even see like uh, i mean both administrations in the states let's take that because those are two polar opposite sides of the world they both are talking about vaccines. Trump's talking about that. Joe Biden's talking about vaccines. It's not like there's one side that's like the vaccine is bad. It's like they're both seeing the vaccine as a solution. Do you think there's going to be a large amount of people that are like, don't want to take it? I, and if so, why? Because um, I have no clue I, why. I think that particularly in the U.S., given the, the recent massive spike in like conspiracy theory and that kind of thing, mm-hmm. um, the fact that a vaccine became available shortly after the election finished is going to make conspiracy theorists go nuts. And then if we're going to all of a sudden be rapidly trying to inject an entire population 
um, conspiracy theorists are going to have a field day. Mm -hmm. So you might end up with some people who become like pseudo anti-vaxxers just because they think the government's trying to inject them with something to control the population. And yeah. I don't know. Dude, the, but that, the day that wouldn't surprise me. That wouldn't surprise me to see it all. Yeah, it was the day. I think it was the day the Democrats were announced as projected winners. Was the day Pfizer came out with a ninety-four percent rating or whatever like that for its for its clinical things. So, I mean, dude, I'm sure there are people going bonkers. You, you better believe it. <laughs> bonkers. So, uh, that's for sure going to be everywhere. And I think you're right. Probably people who are who were already anti-vaxxers will continue mm -hmm. to be. I would hope that people who who are maybe even people who are anti-vaxxers will get it just because like we they've seen kind of the level of to which this pandemic is kind of got out of control um i don't i mean i i think vaccines are perfectly great yeah um, i think that they're very proven um there is no evidence to suggest that they no good evidence to suggest that they're doing anything bad to your body um so short of unless again unless you have an allergy or something like that particularly the, the vaccines that they're talking about using for that pfizer has and stuff like that are mrna um mm -hmm. vaccines, those, are new, which right? means, those are relatively new yeah so it basically um I, in the simplest terms like some a lot of vaccines are like whether they're live attenuated or or dead like they're injecting you with the, the dna or genetic material of the vaccine now most of them are dead so either way, like you couldn't get the flu, say, from getting the flu vaccine because it's mm -hmm. dead. Mm -hmm. um, there's very few live attenuated. I don't think I couldn't even tell you one that's still used. Um, but the uh, an mRNA is like you're not even injecting the direct genetic material of the disease. You're you're like you're injecting stuff like one degree off. So mRNA has to get transcribed into DNA, and right. then it would become uh, whatever it's meant to be. So this is like degrees of separation so you, right. you can't you actually can't get sick from that right um so anyway the, it, it's a good it's a good vaccine um <laughs> and i think that uh yeah i i anti-vax thing we'll see what happens um this is where like I, I mentioned a little bit earlier about like you know we you can't force people to take a vaccine for sure mm -hmm. but um we've kind of jokingly said that like you know they can't they can't force to anybody to let them participate in society yeah so totally. <laughs> if like if you did something like that where it's like great here's your vaccine here's your bracelet like enjoy your, your regular life again um and then anybody who wants to jump up and down about like you can't make us take this vaccine despite it being perfectly safe mm -hmm. um then that's cool but like you guys now have to wait until everybody gets the vaccine so that you're protected by herd immunity because we can't have you running around being a vector so right. like it would it would effectively bump you to the back of the line. So if there was a, a rollout period where everybody you know first line frontline workers blah blah blah, everybody gets the vaccine over time. If you're going to be an anti-vaxer, you can't participate in society until everybody in that line has gone through and mm -hmm. gotten their stuff. Mm -hmm. That would be that would be interesting. Just because I mean that's that's the theoretically, but what protects people from anti? This is very first world kind of a. a mindset yep. like the reason you don't have to worry about these um these diseases and you get to be an anti-vaxxer is because you live in a western society where most people are vaccinated and so you're protected by herd immunity yeah but suddenly if that herd immunity doesn't exist like you're not you can't just do that so yeah. 
you, you now need to wait like you always did for the herd immunity to build up and now you'll be safe. But, um, <laughs> until you, until that happens, like enjoy your lot, enjoy your extended lockdown. So well, be, there, be you could, be, it could be something like that, but it'll be curious to see because there's still like young schools and like kids passing around like measles, mumps, rubella because they're not vaccinated at school. So like, like, I don't know if kids are allowed to go to school without their vaccines, you know, well, let's use here, for example, BC, because I don't know the whole world. Um, like, you think it'll be like, I don't even know, number one, if kids aren't, like I said, if kids aren't allowed to go to school without vaccines. So if kids theoretically are allowed to still go to school without vaccines, <laughs> then like, it'll be hard for them to be like, oh, yeah, you can't go to this concert because you're not vaccinated. Yeah, no, I've seen that's a bit of a pipe dream. And I don't think you can, like, you can't, I don't think you can really infringe on people's personal freedoms to that degree. Right. Um, like even during even in lockdown, Canada. like we're not really letting people, like we're not locking people inside. Like people yeah. right now can participate in society. So you wouldn't be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, we were just kind of joking that that's like, I mean, we're not, we're not big, big on the anti-vax movement yeah. in our whole school. So anyway, I think that you're right though. I think it'll just, it'll depend and probably things like that, like school age kids might be, you know, near the front of the line of that kind mm-hmm. of thing as well people like that are just big time vectors but i don't know um it, over time the herd immunity will build up and we'll be all good mm-hmm. but uh yeah it'll, it'll take some time for sure i think that that's the biggest thing is you know getting the amount of doses and the time it takes to actually inoculate that many people it's just gonna it's gonna take a lot of time and for every person that gets it there's another notch added in the herd immunity and it's just like it's going to improve slowly mm-hmm. but it won't be like a vaccines available today and like boom everything's good yeah it'll take time for that immunity to build up and you know for me personally like i'm certainly not vulnerable but i'm aware of what this stuff means so for me it will take time for me to go out and be really confident and be like oh and like my expectation is not that like oh air travel is going to be wide open now and this Mm -hmm. and that and whatever like I still know those things will be a little ways off because they rely on that herd immunity again to be mm-hmm. good. So, you know, I, and that's where there's a little bit of risk management with like my, my plan wouldn't be to, as soon as I think I can get this vaccination, start planning trips and things like that, right. like take some time, like let things catch up and then, then things will start to slowly kind of come back to normal, but it's not a, like it's not an instant fix it's it's a good fix and it's a pretty fast fix Mm -hmm. um relatively speaking um but it's just like you know those things will take a little bit of time to grind back to life so i wouldn't say yeah like don't don't plan your trip to the bahamas for like january 1st well that'd be interesting to see too how long it takes people to maybe take off masks if that's something that's you know allowed and um you know when's the next time you're gonna be comfortable taking a a shoulder-to-shoulder selfie again like yeah i think it'll take some time and different people have a different risk tolerance right so i think that different people will will adapt more quickly and others especially given your you know your living situation maybe mm-hmm. you live within a multi-generational home and you're like mm-hmm. forget it i'm gonna do the mask thing for an extra two months because i have grandma at home or maybe you're like you have an uh, autoimmune disease and you're like mm-hmm. Fuck, I, i'm i'm definitely gonna keep my mask on for a little while here um and that's totally that's the thing it's like everybody's risk tolerance is different and i think that we just need to remember that at the end of the day you gotta live with everybody so don't don't get your vaccine and then walk down the street and see a guy with a mask and be like you're a fucking idiot just go get yeah. a vaccine like it's not that's not how it works right so i think it's important to remember that once people start getting kind of 
uh, vaccinated if that's what they choose to do. It, like the the ride's not over yet, and so mm-hmm. there's still a period of time where you should try your best not to behave recklessly and still be, you know, be in a half lockdown. Pretend you're still in a little bit of uh, a little bit of lockdown and behave respectfully to people. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, man, because there's a lot of people uh, go along with the rest of the world who are polarized by the subject of like what life is going to be like post pandemic, because a lot of people are saying that it's going to return to normal immediately, which is probably not accurate. And there's a lot of people who are saying there's no, it's the new normal. There's never going to be a normal again. It's the new normal. And it's like, well, I think one of the things that blew my mind is if you look back at the Spanish flu, 1918, people wearing masks. Masks were like super common. There's so many pictures of people at like football games wearing masks and like masks were everywhere in the Spanish flu. But I guarantee nobody without seeing those photos had any idea masks were a thing before now, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's like (laughs) these things will fall off eventually, but. Well, and a lot of like for sure, for sure. And and it's funny that people forget about that, right? And they think that these masks are such a, such a, (laughs) prison sentence but it's like you know we've been we've done this before and yeah. i think it also depends it's, it's a little bit cultural as well you know like a lot of um asian cultures are more mass cultures where i think a lot of to do with population density pollution mm-hmm. multi-generational homes like it's it's more normal in those a lot of those societies so people on transit and things like that forever have already been wearing them. You know, if you're in Vancouver with like a high Asian population, you might still see them for a long time just because people yeah. don't care. Yeah. But like you go to, you go to, you know, the Midwest U S and people fucking care. Yep. And so like they, for sure, as soon as it's, they're allowed, like it's going to be off. Um, if it's not off already, but, uh, that, and I think that, yeah, there's some people who will really rush to get back to normal and then like pretend it never happened and be like, thank God. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there'll be people who do take some time to get back to that. And that's fine. I also think like the new normal thing, I just think is kind of funny because it's like normal is just like normal. What you, we adapt quickly. It's remarkably really quickly. We adapt to things. Yep. Like frankly, for me right now, being at home a lot, working, however much I'm working, wearing a mask in the grocery store is totally fucking normal at this point. So normal, dude. So, you know, yeah yeah like the new normal will be like not having to wear a mask and things like that like it's not we're just going to do whatever people do and whatever is allowed in the areas that you are and you'll you'll totally adapt to that and it will mm-hmm. it will feel normal whatever it is mm-hmm. um hopefully we end up on the other side of this and people have better you know hand hygiene and things like that seriously uh, and you know maybe if we just come up with some better uh habits then all as well are you competing again this year yeah, I'll compete this year. Yeah, not for a little while, but yeah, I'll get there. How's the uh, how's the groin stitch feeling? It's getting better. It's frustrating, but yeah. I like started squatting with like I was squatting a bit with like big like cyclist squats still like heel lift and all kinds of stuff like that. Like a mile, so I just two seventy five or something. You post on your Instagram, just like keep yeah. So I just started easy. squatting. I just started squatting with like flat feet again this week, um, and like squatted two seventy five, which is like not heavy, but I did it with like without significant discomfort. Yeah. So it's like it's getting there. I can't really do certain explosive things still. Like I haven't done any weightlifting in forever. I haven't, you know. So it's it's coming, and I feel like every day you kind of wake up and you're like today's the day it's gonna be better <laughs> and it's just not yeah um but oh yeah i'll get there hopefully by the time the open starts 
Dude, you talked to me at the beginning of this about fatigue from like creating every day and how that assets. I mean, like, I feel like you ask all these questions, but you should probably just be able to assimilate a lot of it to how you feel with training, man. Cause I don't think I do anything too special compared to like you with training the last so many years. Like the, the, the buy-in it takes to create five videos a week is no more. In fact, probably a lot less than the buy-in it takes to train at your level five days a week, every week of the year for the most part, minus the off season. I think they are wrong on that though. I think it's a little different. Um, I think the difference between like, yeah, there's a little bit of cognitive fatigue that comes with that and a lot of physical fatigue for sure. But like what you're talking about with like a creative burnout, like that doesn't really happen. Um, at the very worst, if I'm feeling like mentally not in it, I still can do the stuff and I just, maybe I'm not doing things at PR speed here, but you can get through the motions, get some good training in and be done. And I don't have, I don't do anything creative. I don't have to think like a lot of it is very much just checking boxes. No one's you show judging up. you on your performance at the gym. That's what you say. Yeah. And you show up and do what you're told and you, and you kind of just like you work your way through it. And, you know, I'm good at it because I'm good at motivating myself to push hard by myself. But, you know, I'd be lying if I said there were days where I didn't feel like crushing it. And mm-hmm. so sometimes you just don't. Like, you, you take a day that's a little bit easier and, and it's fine. It's good for you and it's totally your prerogative to do that. But I think there's a different level of that, of cognitive fatigue that comes with, you know, actually trying to be creative and create something and, and whatever. So uh, because I don't do my own programming or anything like that, uh, it's pretty easy for me to just sort of like walk in and then slowly check boxes off until the day's done, then walk out. Is the temptation getting more real though with COVID, with being at home, with having less travel, with having a bit more of like what you would call a normal life? You're back at the clinic. Well, you're at the clinic for the first time, really, because you were a student before. Is the temptation getting more strong to just be like, ah, let's just work nine to five? Have every night dinner with Michelle. I mean, she's not working nine to five, but you know what I mean? Have weekends, like just slip into that nice, normal life that you are pretty much able to go into whenever you want because you've set yourself up with this life outside of profit. <laughs> you don't have to be yeah. an influencer for the rest of your life, man. I don't know. I think that it's it, like, no, I I'm love that I have the opportunities that I have. Um, and I, I love it. It's super fun. But um I would say that with all the lockdown and stuff, because the, I think the things that I like the most are, you know, being able to travel and go see people and, and compete in fun places and, and like actually compete on a competition floor, like hang with friends there, do stuff like that. Like those kind of opportunities are really fun. And that's kind of what um, I enjoy the most of it. Like real, really um when you're just kind of training at home and doing like online workouts, like I'm just, I'm just beating the shit out of myself in the gym every day, which isn't the most fun. Like that's not objectively Mm -hmm. fun. I I like to test myself for sure. But um, the real fun stuff is sort of stuff that we haven't been able to do as much of this year. So, um, you know, training now and like off season mode where I'm not really pushing super hard if I don't want, which is great. I'm rehabbing still um it's just kind of going through the motions it's a lot of autopilot on certain things um just kind of keeping it a little bit lit but uh yeah I mean, going, into the op- going into the open i feel like i yeah i'm like sometimes you just feel like yeah maybe i i don't have to <laughs> but i definitely if i actually sit and think of it i i i 
still want to compete for at least a few more years. Um, I think there's some still some good uh, some gas in the tank. Is celebrity fun? Do you enjoy it? I uh, you have to ask a celebrity. <laughs> I knew that was gonna be your answer. I, I don't know. It's it's. Fun. Come on, you get your you get your. Sh- I know it's sheltered. It's sheltered celebrity. I get it. You're yeah, not going to grocery store. Every that day. I enjoy is actually really fun because you can turn it on and off. If I go somewhere that's like a CrossFit event, then I'm like I get to be recognized uh, and enjoy any of the benefits that go with that. But then if when I go home, I'm not, and I just get to kind of enjoy all the benefits of anonymity, which is great. So I I, I still get to live a very private life, which is awesome. Um, yeah, but what yeah. what about when the when the uh, the pre-programmings of your prefrontal cortex is tickling you to go check your phone every five seconds, and then there's people who have access to you there? You're still a celebrity twenty four seven because you have your phone on you. Yeah, it's kind of funny actually. My um, I got I, my parents the other day gave me like I had a chat with them, and my they told me like some update. Both my brothers had like pretty significant life updates recently, um, and I like they asked if either of them had told me, and I was like, fuck no. Like those guys don't tell me anything. And I was like, it's like kind of like, it's kind of not fair. Cause like my life is on the internet. Yeah. So like if anything happens in my life, they pretty much know about it right away. Yeah. But then like, happens to them, I'm like, I have to chase them down to fucking hear about it. Yeah. But um, yeah, I don't know. The phone thing is a bit bad. I try to get better for it, but it's hard. Like it's hard when you're kind of, I feel like I can justify it. Cause it's kind of work. It's work. I get it. Uh, I know. I know. And it, it's, I'm not, best words i'm trying to get better mm. Ree gets mad at me all the time if i'm like doing like trying to post something to instagram or something as she's talking to me and like <laughs> rightfully so um and i justify it with work but it's like it's work that like it's, you don't need to be doing it in that moment and it's very easy to move it doesn't feel like it flexible is but it is work. Very, it's very flexible do you think yeah, you... sorry go ahead no, well i'm about to take a big old pivot so let okay. me finish well, your thought. it's good that you you were saying before that you try to take uh like your evenings and have your weekends where you're a bit more disconnected so i think that's good i answered my pad velma text and that's about it everything else i stay away from good keep doing that do you do you think uh old tricky ricky is going to come back and beat fraser this year he's allowed to he compete can't again. he can't this year he can't come back till the next year 2021 no no he cannot compete in 2021 Craig Ritchie just made this whole video about Tricky Ricky being able to come back and compete. And I just took it at face value. I didn't research well, it. Well, he got a, a four-year ban after the games in 2017, which would, to me would mean the games in 2018, 2019, 2020, 2021. So if he served four years from whatever his sanction date was, which was August something or, say, September something mm-hmm. of 2017 – he would have to wait till September of 2021 to start competing again, which would mean the 2021 season would be over. Maybe I completely misunderstood that. Or he or just maybe, misunderstood maybe, it. Maybe Craig did. Yeah, <laughs> I don't, one of us did. I can't speak for it. But from my the understanding of the man. sanction, he, he, he's not eligible until the 2022 season. Interesting. Because the 2017 season doesn't count for his four-year ban. As far as, I mean, as far as I know. Do you think... Um, because he still competed the whole season. Do you think Frey Fiverr is going to come back? Hashtag Frey Fiverr. Um, I don't know. I, I think probably. Um, I might depend a little bit on what the season looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, if like things are just crazy and they just he's kind of like, you know what, it's going to be a whole year of online shit. Maybe he doesn't. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Would it be like a Michael Jordan, like a retire and then come back when it's normal again? 
<laughs> That'd be funny. I don't think he would do that though. I think if he retires, he's going to retire. Um, I think he'll, if he'll, he'll, he might do another couple of years, maybe, but um, I mean, hopefully he does. We've but, had these conversations before where I've asked you about like, how much does legacy really mean to you? And like, you know, in my brain, it's like the dude likes money. That's not like a hidden thing. He, he got into the sport in a lot of ways for money and he likes money. At least that's what he says. And you know, there, he has his legacy now where like, I don't think anyone would take anything away from him if he took a second place or a third place. Like, I don't think anyone would be like, Oh, he's not, he's not the great Matt Frazier that won five in a row. So like he could still make a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of money probably for the next, like, I don't think he's not going to qualify for the games for barring a massive injury. Even if he competed for the next like five years, like he could probably be 35 and still qualify for the games. Maybe I don't know unless he takes a massive injury. But even if he's only coming six, but if he's coming six and he still has his Nike contract and all that kind of stuff, he's still making a lot of money. Why not just keep racking in the cash as opposed to like worrying about legacy? Yeah, I don't know. It depends. Like, I feel like the other thing to remember is that there's, he probably, he's very unlikely to stop training hard because he's like, oh, I don't care about winning, winning anymore. Uh, Like, I think you'll, he'll, you'll have to beat him. Um, I don't think he's gonna like not train hard because it's his sixth year going to oh, win. Of course, like he's, of course, yeah. You know what I mean? So yeah, yeah, yeah. The, I just the, mean if the, he gets beaten. So I just mean like the load, the mental and physical load it takes to, to train like he does, um, is difficult. So to just say that like oh, just do another three or four years, like it's, that's not what it is. Um, totally. Every year, you've got to like muster up like all right, here we fucking go again. Um, so it just depends when he's. I, I'm. I would guess that someday he'll just decide he doesn't want to do it anymore. He'll like, he'll just get to the gym and he'll sit on the assault bike and then he'll just go take a big sigh and he'll just get off the bike. Yeah. <laughs> he'll be like, nah, actually I'm not going to do that anymore. Um, I, and you know, and it's hard to know. Like, so I think it's hard to know when that day is yeah. going to come. And I'm sure he, some days, as much as you might try to think, you know, the answer, like some days you just feel differently. And you know, that, that day just might come and who, who knows? But um, he certainly could compete a bunch longer if he wants. Um, I don't know what he and, where he and Sammy are at. You know, there's a lot of things that go into it. I would love to compete against him for more, a few more years. Mm-hmm. Um, but I understand. I understand yeah. as good as anybody uh, what it means. So, Listen, man, I totally get that because, you know, I was speaking to it two seconds ago that I think the, the biggest thing for you guys is the fact that people don't understand how hard it is to be a games athlete day in and day out. Totally understand that. I'm thinking more just if the comparison or the choice is between like having a legacy that's golden, like say he, everything else is the same and he's just as fired up to go into the gym. Do you think he would ever make a decision purely based on worrying about tainting the legacy or being able to rack in more money? Everything else is the same. He's just as motivated. And he's like, I know though that I'm not quite as fit and I could take a second if that, if and when that day comes, will he still keep competing? Because he knows that a second is still a heck of a lot of money, even if he's just as cool. As probably. My guess is probably. I'd say that if he chooses to stop competing, it's because he's changing his life right. significantly, where he's like, you know, he wants to start a family with Sam here. He's ready to move back to Vermont or whatever it is. Um, I don't think it would be because he's like worried about losing. I think that he'll, he'll stop competing because he wants to stop competing and he wants to start doing something else. Um, which, yeah, like I, yeah, if he's, if he's gets beat, whatever, and somebody's great, then that's, I'm sure it won't kill him. 
you know, and he's like, it's not like he's won every single time he's taken the floor. Like he has in the last like many years, but Mm -hmm. he's already like, if you want to be like, Oh, he's already got a tainted legacy, like whatever. Yeah. yeah, um, um, So I think that if you, if you decided to stop competing, it would be because he just, he wanted to do something else or he was ready to stop. Um, Not necessarily because he was worried about a certain athlete beating him or something. Is uncle Pat going to become father Pat anytime soon? We'll see. Maybe. Maybe. Is that, that age. is that like a, is that like a complete hindrance for your ability to keep doing what you're doing now? Like, are you done the moment you have a kid? Does that ruin your ability to be a cross games athlete? Well, Sam Quanch came second this year. He's got a young kid, less than a year old. Yeah. I'm not saying so. it can't be done. I'm just asking you personally, if you think it would completely kind of wash your. I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, we, I think that we would have to change a few things for sure, but that's uh, fine. You know, you have the decisions you make and the changes in lifestyle. Michelle's a rock star too. So it'll be interesting because she'll be working soon because she's done residency in July, end of June. Yep. So, yeah. So I don't know. We'll have to see what it looks like on the outside of that. Fortunately now, at least if I can train a little bit at home, it shouldn't be a huge deal. It probably hinders it probably hinders the ability to do certain travel and things like mm-hmm. that. Sleep. Um, but you know, if the system's changing again in a way that's a little bit less travel intensive, maybe that's not such a big deal. But yeah. Kids are scary, man. Aren't you scared of having kids? No, nah, they're big small. Not scary. <laughs> Dude, it's like you, you could you could take them, Nate. They're small. So you just got a dog and you're telling me you're not scared of a kid now? No. My dog's great. He's We're awesome. in different places here, clearly. Kids scare the ever living heck out of me. At least the thought of owning one. Ah, if you don't, that. it's just you just put it away somewhere. If you don't like what it's doing, <laughs> you just put it in the room. Close they can't it off. even move for the first while. So yeah, yeah they just they roll around. All right, man. I've talked to you for a long time. I'll let you go. I want to ask you just a couple fan questions before I let sure. you go. Quick little, quick little ones. Where did you get fan questions from? Dream team. It's like my like inner circle of people. Did you write that you were, you wrote up that you were doing this? Yeah. Oh, I didn't see it anywhere. Well, that's because it's posted to the dream team, which is an exclusive uh, area that not everyone has access to. You have to join it. Pat. Not even me. Not even I you. see how it is. Yeah. You can join it. I'll All send right, you the link. Let's hear it. Yeah. Sign up. Paul Anderson. What two mo what two movements do you feel are the best for building capacity? Well, capacity to do what? I don't know. It just says capacity. I should read the questions, Pat. <laughs> you make the answers. Hmm. I don't pretend hmm. to know what they want to know. Um, I would say two movements. Fuck. Um, thruster is an assault bike. Okay. I think, I think or, it would be an assault bike. Assault bike is the best. Yeah. I think in general, it'd be like, if you could only do two movements and still be the best athlete you can be, what would they be? It's, I would probably agree with you on that. Yeah, you might want to have a pulling movement if you had to just like pick two. A cluster. But yeah, sure. Right. You pull it off. Uh, machines are great though. Machines are great because they don't make a lot of they don't do damage. You don't have to drop mm-hmm. them and bang things. Um, but you can go nuts on like rowing, biking, like you can get real fit. Like I feel like when, <laughs> when we like when we come out of the off season, like games athletes, like mm-hmm. when I come out of the off season and I'm like, all right. Oh, the opens in like three weeks. What do I do? I have to get fit. Um, I go and I do a lot of intervals on like rowing and and biking, and then I'm really fit. And then the open happens. So that's that's where you get bang for your buck. 
That's not the answer people want to hear, man. I want to hear I that you go not. and do a couple rounds <laughs> of Cindy and go run this a few. Is why, this is why, this is the difference between like being a games athlete though. Yeah, you see, it's not, it's, it's not a secret. Like I will tell you exactly what you have to do, but the hard part is that you have to go do it afterwards. Did you see the title of my vlog today? No. What truly in capitals separates games athletes apart from us? What I've learned. Is height. that what I've, height. You say height. Yeah. <laughs> That's how that separates them from me, maybe. But yeah. All right. Uh, is, that, ben, is that what you said? What was the take home? What was the clickbait on that? The take home was that it's the the mental ability to do things you don't want to do. So it's basically the assault bike interval quote. It's the sense of like, I I've, I feel like I've gained this perspective a little bit for what you guys do from hanging around you in large part. But then also this like seven months of uninterrupted DECA comp competitors programming, which is programmed for really <laughs> high level athletes. And I can't do it. And there's always things every day where I'm like, this is absolutely insane. I can't handle this. And I just choose not to do it. My like big thought is that I always talk to athletes about, I was talking to Carrie Pierce about this, about like, I'm like, do you ever feel like your programming is just insane? And like you you're, you're done and you don't need to do it and it's going to hurt you and you still do it anyway. She's like, yeah, all the time. I think that's one of the biggest separators is like, you'll just do what you need to do and you'll do the work no matter what, no matter how sore, how tired, whereas people like me, like I'm probably not going to train this weekend because I feel really beat up in the last two weeks. I'm like, that's great. I feel great about that decision. You can't. That's if it makes you feel any better. I usually complain about it. <laughs> well, I don't know. I'm not worried. All right, so here's a good workout for Paula. I did this the other day. It's just Paul. Every, but... Paul, sorry. Every three minutes for five rounds. Okay. Um, 18 calorie assault bike sprint. Mm -hmm. And then burpees with the remaining time. Did you see that workout Fraser posted the other day? So there's, a, there's a capacity builder. Yeah, I did. It's pretty aggressive. <laughs> That's ridiculous. I like obviously he even said it was one of the hardest ones and obviously it's like the biggest like I tell you Loki is like I was out of shape when I did it <laughs> yeah I know right <laughs> okay like, buddy just like slaying dong left right and center trying to toss that workout out there here's the thing that workout can be done by a very very small percentage of people most people yeah. will quit that workout I would quit that workout no chance more than like five minutes in no chance holding 24 calories on the assault bike and then going and do 18 GHG sit-ups in the next minute or however many it was like, yeah. that's, that's madness. You could do, do it. it with like 20 and 20 ab mat sit-ups or something like that. Yeah. Make it it'll be easier on your quads than GHGs and GHGs are kind of dumb. Well, yeah. Don't get me started, man. You should see my GHGs. I look like an old person when I do them because I had such bad sciatic nerve issues from like folding in half when I was a kid, like doing the full, like Haley okay. Adams at the games and so now I just like go back with one hand. I have the thing set on four and I'm like six feet tall. So my butt is basically touching the ground and I just tap the ground and come back up. Makes it really hard on your quads, but that's the thing. So you wouldn't be able to do that with the assault bike. No chance, dude. I can't, I can't do GHGs fast. I only do them slow because I'm not the same reason. That's how you rebounding. should do that. I, I, competing, that's how you should do yeah, that. I don't, I do. I even want to compete on low levels, but the problem is, is people who want to compete on the levels I want to compete at, which is fun local comps still think they need to bend in half on GHDs and do rebounding box jumps and training. It's like, it's not worth it. You should do rebounding box jumps and training. I can't tell if you're kidding. No, you should. Dude, I've done so... Wait, 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 wait. You should because if you're going to do them in competition, then you should do them in training? If you ever want to be able to do them, okay. you should do them. I agree. Yes. 
I just think people who aren't trying to be games athletes shouldn't do them, period. Yeah, because the only the problem that people have and people are worried about getting hurt is that the problem is that they never do them in training and then all of a sudden they one day decide to do them in a competition or like at a high intensity. And then you have never exposed your body to that stimulus and now you're screwed. I do. But agree. like if you you need to you need to build up tolerance and tendons and things like that. Like that's just how it works. So yep. yeah. If you ever want to be able to do them, you need to do them and just start low or start whatever, but like you need to increase tissue tolerance. The only way it works. Dr. Vellner. Ben Gozer, how has COVID affected your day job? Ben Gozer, presume my, my day job being as a chiropractor. <laughs> I, guess. I guess so. <laughs> um, it's been fine. We were clo- our clinic was closed for like two months early, like in like the March, April. Well, excuse me, kind of window. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's been fine. We have like we changed the windows of of. Um, like treatment windows are longer now because you have time for disinfecting and time for cleaning. Things are offset. So there's no patients crossing paths in the halls. Uh, we don't have to use our waiting room anymore. People just wait in their cars and then they check in online and then we go out to get them. Um, there's a lot of like protocols like that. Uh, therapists and patients wear masks, blah, blah, blah. So lots of little stuff like that. Other than that, not too bad. Um, tons of screening, tons of screening for COVID. Um, and then the only other thing recently is that now if people have been or feeling sick, our cancellation policies have changed. So people can cancel if they feel sick, right. but then they can't rebook for like two weeks because you basically give them that quarantine period. Right. It's like you, you can cancel last minute and you don't get penalized, but you can't book again for two weeks. Um, so it just sort of makes sure that nobody was feeling sick and then comes in, you know, two days later. Right. Um, but it's been fine. I mean, I would say that the, the overall clinic volume has been down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's been coming back. Like people have been okay. The islands again, the island has been a bit of a safe haven up until just recently. They had a few K they had like an outbreak on the island recently, but, um, so we've, we've been pretty lucky. Um, mm-hmm. and then I've been, I've been away for the last week and a half. So, um, there was a recent outbreak, but I haven't, I don't really know much about it. I've been getting lots of messages from the clinic about some updates on protocols and things like that, but, um, I haven't actually had to affect any of it yet so it's been good it's been good it's actually a really nice change of pace from training it's nice to like i have found the same thing when i was at school like it's nice Mm -hmm. to be able to just like leave leave that at the gym and then go do something else and that's something else that demands your full attention so you don't i'm not like daydreaming about crossfit things i'm not thinking about it like i i can't i have to be focused on what i'm doing so it's really nice to have that um and just have that to keep you busy so uh it's been really good I need a hobby, man. I talk about that all the time. I need something different than this to set my mind away. Yeah. Although um, sometimes I'm really sore when I treat patients and it sucks. <laughs> I can imagine, like, bro. My low back's like super sore and I'm like leaning over the table and I'm like, fuck, I'm so sore. <laughs> Dude, so I did this great. I did this doozy yesterday. Did you see my story with the workout from yesterday? The like four, six minute AMRAP one? Uh, I don't think so. It was four six-minute AMRAPs with a two-minute rest, four dumbbell snatch, 70-pound, six pull-up, and eight box jump over, 24 inches. And oh. yeah, and I was holding, pat myself on the back here, I was holding the almost the games athlete level, whatever, because that's a workout I'm really good at. So I did like about seven rounds each time. So I did about 180 pull-ups. And like, I've never done that many pull-ups in a workout before. And nice. like, I'm not that awful today. But like, even trying to hold my phone up to ask you the questions, like I get the odd little twinge. So I can't imagine having to manipulate someone's body in that kind of setting. 
was pretty bad. Sometimes I'm like, fuck, your back hurts. Um, the, uh, that's, that workout sucks because I hate workouts with really short rounds like that, where mm-hmm. you just do like a ton of rounds. It's the worst. Seven rounds per AMRAP, and it was like a 32-minute workout with the rest. It was madness. Okay, Josh Ryan. What was it? I only got three more left for you just to keep the score here. Okay, Josh Ryan. What was it? Well, you can take as long as you want. And it's your life, not mine. Josh Ryan, what was the turning point for you making the decision to start competing at a high level? Hmm. Flip the switch. Flip, flip. A good question. Uh, Job, Josh Ryan. That's like the biggest compliment ever for me when people tell me I ask good questions. It makes me smile on the inside. I didn't ask that question. But. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know, Josh. I think that it's not really like a very definitive switch. I think that at a certain point, you just have to like, I, I just made the decision that I would go try to go to some higher level competitions. I think I basically like did the open in 2013, like right after starting, got killed. Did a train for like a year just with buddies uh, at my school gym. Did the 2014 Open and qualified for regionals. I can't remember if I did. Yeah, so I would have done that. And then I think I went to like East Coast Championship or something like that. Like the following, like that year after regionals. I just like did their qualifier and qualified and went and then I like had another buddy that qualified. So I just went and like bought a ticket to Boston and went and competed. And I think that sometimes having that exposure to like what the next level looks like is a really helpful for you to wrap your head around what you need to do to get there. So I think after that, like after regionals, it was like, I did really good in my first regional randomly. And I was like, ah, cross it's not that hard. And then I went to UCC and I was like, okay, like I see the kind of difference between, you know, what's how much a second costs in certain workouts. And then the next year I qualified or I went team and I qualified on a team. So I think that kind of around then and that like 2014, when I went to regionals in 2014, I was like, I had no idea what the competition season scene was like. And uh, I hadn't ever followed the games or knew anything about it. So it was like my first big exposure to a big stage. And then I think also because I was successful in that first year, you obviously like to do things you're good at. So I think mm-hmm. I just was like, ah, this is something that I could do. Like I had a lot of fun. I had a really positive experience. So I was like, I started to kind of seek out what other big events were around. And, uh, you know, I just kind of like went out for a couple of them. Um, and then, yeah, then, then, and then in 2015, I did team and qualified to the games. And then it was like, yeah, I'll go back, back individual after that. So I think having friends like you, allows me to avoid delusions of grandeur with my fitness when I'm sitting in this echo chamber of like people telling me I'm so great on social media, which they actually don't, but like people watch me every day and it feels like I have this life. I'm basically living a professional athlete's life in quarantine right now. I have sponsors and I get to work out all day and that's pretty much what I get paid for. But then I go and I work out with people who are actually in those positions in like real life. And it just, it, it allows me to realize that. So it's like you said, with going to the ECC, realize what it actually takes. It's like, yeah, it's, it's quite a bit different than what us regular folk experience. Yeah. And I mean, I think there's always levels to that. Like I've a couple of years at the games talking to people who are there in the rookie year, like I'll ask them about it. And I remember hearing from some guys being like, yeah, it's, it was eye opening mm-hmm. um, because you know, you work so hard say in the old system to like, okay, get up to that top 
part of the regional and have a shot to qualify and you're and you're one of the best people around like you, mm-hmm. you are and then you go to the games and you're one of the worst people around yep. <laughs> and you're like what the hell just happened and it's a, it's like this big reality check of being like holy shit like i just broke through the ceiling only to realize i'm actually on the floor of the next floor yeah um of like the next level so now i've got all this work to do to get back to the ceiling of that other that other level so um I think it's, it's an important step though. Like if you never get through, you kind of just still feel like that big fish in a small pond and, and yeah, that's man. not great. Um, so Dude, you don't want to be, you don't want to be the smartest guy in the room. I know that's, and the only people I've worked I've worked out with like side by side in the last literally calendar year is you and M like no other people regular or otherwise. So it's like, I only feel like I suck. <laughs> There's no, that's also not, that's not healthy. Either, though. <laughs> like, it's kind of funny. Anyway. Stephanie Cedric, what is your go-to greasy food choice at McGill? Oh, fuck. At McGill. Drunk Knight Vellner. Let's go. Uh, Slugged a couple with the boys leaving the bar where you had... Well, it depends. It depends where, like, what counts as McGill. So, like, right on McGill area, um, McGill Pizza was, like, good. Uh, What would you rate it out of 10? Well, I mean, it was just like they had like a greasy breakfast that was good, like for when you're over. And then they had a, they just like had these small personal pizzas that were like super easy to grab and, and take off somewhere if you're like, and it was right in the Miguel Ghetto. Just so a solid grease trap there. or what? It was easy to go there and grab something. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But I would say for like staples for Montreal, uh, I lived in the plateau. So um, <laughs> on Saint Laurent, there was this like window. I don't even know if it's still there, but there was like this old, this old Asian guy would, would serve uh, fried noodles with like, with like peanut sauce on them for two, for two bucks. So you basically would be like, it was this $2 chow mein. Yeah. And like, so you call it either $2 chow or toodles. And uh, (laughs) it was like on the way, it was like on St. Laurent, like North of park say, Mm -hmm. but it was, uh, um, yeah, it was just like kind of on the way home for me usually, or like yeah. near my house where if I was just like hungry, I would just stop there, and you just drop drop a tuna and get this little thing, like this little container of just yeah, yeah, yeah. the olive chow mein with peanut sauce. It was so good. They're just like it was just noodles cooked in oil, yeah. and like the peanut sauce was. I swear, I was just like melted peanut butter. Like, <laughs> and it was so good though. So that was I'd say that's like my, the classic. I don't that's know if amazing. the toodles are around anymore, but that was the shit. It's a good question. I like that question. So that's probably somebody who's out McGill, I'm assuming. Yeah, I have no idea. Someone who did their research, that's for sure. Yeah, or went to McGill. Oh. Yeah. It looked you up in an alumni book. Uh Krista <laughs> Krista Mack, what were some of the struggles you faced in school slash competing? I mean, some. There I know there's a boatload. What's the what was the most annoying thing? Let me reword that. What was the most annoying thing about trying to be a top level athlete while being in school? I was like the so thing I think, that pissed you off the most. I think when I was in Montreal doing my undergrad, I was still kind of just starting. So I didn't like I did a lot of like I did some regionals, things like that. I graduated 2015 and moved to Toronto before. So I would have done my first year at the games right before I started school in Toronto for my chiropractic school. So basically my, my whole like individual career back was while I was in Toronto for school. So in Montreal, it was like, I don't know, I was still training hard. I was not as committed. I was 
like still partying lots and like doing fun stuff. Um, but like knew what I was trying to do. Uh, but I had a little less pressure on it and I, and I didn't, it didn't, I was going to school a lot more and it was just like, I was trying to get into the, my next stage of life. Um, once I was in my Cairo school, it didn't like, I basically, that school was a little different where you, there, there was a little bit less, uh, emphasis on attendance and things like that. Mm-hmm. So I think early on, it was a lot of, it was trying to figure out what I had to every year like i'd have to figure out what courses i really needed to go to what stuff i was able to learn on my own pretty easily what stuff i needed to be at blah 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 blah. um and like honestly one of the big things i struggled with was getting um support from the school um because i was trying to compete and travel and do these things and it was like hard for me to be like hey uh they a lot of times I, I have found academic institutions have a really hard time giving you like leeway. Right. And they, and they don't want to, they really hype themselves up as like, it should always be the hardest thing you've ever done in your life. Um, <laughs> and a lot of people who are academics because they're really academics, they can't understand why you want to put all of your focus on that. Mm-hmm. Like the fact that you were doing something else was almost like disrespectful to them. So I feel like I got a ton of, I was like pulling teeth anytime I had to do anything like, um, and regionals every year was the same time as my final exams. So I'd always have like, okay, regionals days come up. Our region is this time. Okay, fuck. I have an exam that Friday. Like, um, or I, the one year I had an exam the Thursday, so I couldn't get to the regional until like Thursday night by like mm-hmm. midnight. And then I had to compete the next day. So I couldn't be at the briefings. And like the one, like there was just, I was always trying to like massage them into giving me some considerations on various things. Like, Hey, I got to be in London, uh, in six months. Like, and I know that I have this exam at that time. Can we, can I write it before or later or anything? And they're like, no, no can do. We can't do that. And you're like, well, fuck, like, why not? It's six months. There's no way there's nothing we can do. Mm. Um, so I found like I, I got a lot of, I had a lot of trouble dealing with administration of school being like, Hey, I'm, I'm trying to do two things at once here at a high level. And you're really making my life difficult. And I, and in my, from my eyes, I felt like they should be trying to help because mm-hmm. it looks good for them. Um, if I'm like, if I'm doing some good things and then I, I get, can like, I can come back and say like, Oh yeah, my institution was so supportive, blah, 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 blah. Um, I think it's a good look for them. And they clearly didn't see it the same way. Um, until my fucking last year, then all of a sudden it was like, Hey, can you do an interview for this alumni magazine? Can you do this for fucking blah, blah, blah. And I was like, Holy shit. No way. Like I just spent like four years absolutely like fighting you tooth and nail over every little thing. Like, Hey, I'm going to miss, you know, I have to miss this lab a few times this year because of competitions. And they're like, great. Well, you're going to lose 3% of your course grade every time you miss one. Like, okay, well, can I do anything to stop that? nope well you could not go I'm like well I can't not go mm-hmm. and they're like well then you're gonna lose this and it's just I, I, it was like unbelievable the amount of I felt like it was just abuse just for the sake of like trying to make me stop doing it um and then finally in the end like they just I they were asking for a lot of uh favors in my last like six months of school so I thought that was pretty funny but that was tough and it was it's always just organizing your time like so it, it made it it made it challenging, but it was just then you just had to deal with what you you had to do. So um, organizing my days around like, okay, 
I have to be at these certain classes in the day so I can train in the morning, then go to class, then train in the afternoon, then do whatever reading I have to do for the evening. Like organizing days was challenging, but once you slipped into the routine, it was fine. Um, and then from the flip side of it, I don't know, for the training side, like, yeah, I think that those are both hand in hand. It's just like, how, how did you balance it? Cause it was always, they were both very important. So it was just, how do I make both of these things work? Um, cause I was uh, very unwilling to give up either one of them. Right. And, uh, I always kind of felt like, you know, if when things matter to you enough, you figure out how to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was just what it was like a lot of the time, if it meant, you know, I was getting probably most of my education, I was sleeping like six hours probably per night trying to like get all my work done do all my training get to the classes I needed to be at do all the things that I need to do so um that was just the way it was and like most athletes aren't doing that and it was just like I knew that I had that was just the way it needed to be and I was fortunate I got a lot of help and support from like my friends and peers at school and things like that but it's it was just like time management was difficult and I think that those are things that you have to figure out for yourself so in the first year of school, I, I, I paid a lot of attention to what I really needed to do. And mm-hmm. there's like there's what they told you you needed to do. And then there was like what you could get away with. Yeah. And it might not sound good, but like I, I played that game a little bit where it was like, hey, you know, sometimes if I want to do both of these things, there's periods where one might suffer a little bit. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if it was like if I busted my ass and I got like my course grade was like, stellar but my final exam was worth i don't know what 25 percent of my grade and regionals was that same weekend like maybe i just have to like take a little hit on that last exam and not study as much because i'm prepping for regionals and like there was just like now and then there was trade-offs that i would have preferred not to make but Mm -hmm. sometimes you just had to do it so needless to say mcgill wasn't the beneficiary of the donation portion of your first podium check right you're not paying the alumni bill at uh, mcgill They've, those institutions have got enough of my money. Yeah, no kidding, right? Dude, that's a whole uh, separate I'm not, podcast. I'm not, I'm not signing any uh, alumni checks anytime soon for anybody. Is this you? Yeah. Where'd that that's pic- me in Where'd like 20... I want to say it's 2009. Has this been widespread around the internet? Am I just finding this now or did I uncover I think this? if you Google my name, it probably was like one of the first 10 photos that comes up. Yeah, it was. Cause it's no. off like a, it was all, I did a, I kept a little travel blog to keep my family like, uh, it looped in. Cause my brother and I traveled for like four months mm-hmm. in Asia when I was like 19. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so yeah, it would have been 19 or 20. Um, that- so like, yeah, maybe it's 2010, 2010, 2011 would have been when we were gone, I think. So yeah. Um, yeah, that's like old just an old photo of me I, I like that was like post-retirement from gymnastics pre-crossfit <laughs> this is my favorite pat this one right there that's that good hair. hair i like that that's hair a, a lot hair. man i can relate do you think you'd ever grow your hair out again your hair's just been shorter and shorter ever since i've gotten to know you i think you've just continually made your hair shorter no i think it just depends when you see me i feel like i i cut my hair and then i wait like another six months and then i cut my hair again so depending on my i don't like keep a style because mm. i hate getting my hair cut like every month mm. so i just like why do you hate I it just, i love getting my hair cut which i know isn't apparent right now but it's one of my favorite yeah, things. Dude, i had to stop because i was so money. addicted to it it costs money i know 
and I don't have money, so I had to stop. Yeah. That's why I have this because I'm broke. I'm not, I'm not paying to get my hair cut every fucking month. Like you can afford to though. You win rope twice twice a year. You got to let yourself enjoy some things in life, Pat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Like buy a GHD. Plenty. I enjoy plenty. Of, yeah, I'm working on that. If there's none around. There's no stock in the world right now. <laughs> I believe that fifty percent. All right, man. Well, thanks for chatting. That was fun. No worries. Oh, 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 oh,